being here, and I'm so happy that you've come to join me. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to stay up late. Good morning. Good morning to you. When the band began to play, the stars were shining bright. Ladies and gentlemen, those who do not believe in a gender binary, this is the Directors Club Podcast. I am Patrick Rapol. And you bet I'm James Eric Laskowski. Ooh, a new... Why, why are you introducing yourself like this, Jim? I don't know. You know, that's how I originally knew you, was through your stage name, James Eric. Yes. First, that's, like, how I, that's how I credited it on IMDb. First two years I knew you, I would just say, oh, yeah, James Eric. We're going over to James Eric's house. Why are you so mad? Oh, James Eric said some stupid fucking pun. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> that's how I identified you. Well, believe it or not, I do have a last name. Yeah. Um, I'm ready to break into song and dance here. Yeah. As we oh. are joined by previous guest uh, journalist for IndieWire's uh, Shadow and Act, uh, as well as a DJ for WHPK. And also the uh, co-founder and the co-programmer of the Black Harvest Film Festival yes. here in Chicago, which this year will be celebrating celebrating our 21st year, 21 years. Congratulations. This is the one, the only, Sergio Mims. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello, everyone. How you doing? How you doing? Uh, it's great to be back on the show talking about what we love, movies and directors. Correct. Patrick? Yeah, I said indeed. <laughs> We're on Skype. Uh, the fr- I, this is the first episode. Jim is back in the same state as me. Uh, first regular episode. But unfortunately, uh, the city of Chicago, um, in, that, in a continuing effort to privatize everything, They've uh, the CTA has switched over to a sort of Ventra card, which doesn't work, and uh, I uh, on public transportation uh, use these cards, and they sort of just scan the cards. You don't slide it through anything, and I had about forty minutes of trouble trying to get mine to work, and then I ended up missing my train to Elgin to see uh, Jim. So uh, we're going over Skype. So we're gonna be wow. it's gonna be harder to talk talk over each other and such. Yeah. Well, we did we did that exhaustively on Robert Altman, so that's true. We don't I haven't had much. any trouble on that v- uh, Vista card or whatever they call it. I haven't had any problems yet. No. It's very similar to the sort of card they use in New York. And thank God hmm. I'm not in New York right now. Yeah, why is that? Oh, oh, oh yeah, the, the blizzard, blizzard from the right. Yeah. Last time I was, well, last February I was in New York, and I was forced to stay in the airport for a day and a half. Not fun. Look, Did it turn into not fun. the terminal? Uh, I was at LaGuardia. You do not want to spend at least more than five minutes at oh, LaGuardia. God. You just yeah. want to go in and get out. I, I yeah. do know that. It's, it's, like, it's right. like being a wartime journalist in LaGuardia. You've got you to gotta keep moving. You can't, if you yeah. stay still too long, that's when you get apprehended. I always tend to be in New York always in the spring, the, spring, the winter, spring, and the fall. And usually around this time of year, usually I will be in New York for some things. Um, not happening. It wasn't what I was going to do. wasn't happening now. Thank God. Wow. You know, 
As a matter of fact, I got, a, I got an email from a friend of mine from the U.K., and just about 50 minutes ago, she said, I'm so sorry to hear what's going to be going on. I hope you're okay. <laughs> and I told her, baby is okay. I'm, <laughs> we're safe, you know, better them than us. Yeah. They can handle it. That's what it's come to. We're, we've, 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 it's, it's this post-apocalyptic uh, weatherscape. We've, we've become animals, mm. right? We've right. all seen the day after Bet- tomorrow. We'll be fine. Bet- better right. them than us. Better than that's you know. You say that lightheartedly, but in a couple of years, when uh, when you're murdering for gasoline for your uh, tricked out death mobile, you know, better them than us. That'll just be a motto tattooed on your chest in like a in, with a, like a prison tattoo gun. Well, guitar, you know, if life, if life, if you're telling me that life is going to be like Fury Road, that may be pretty hip. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Number one on my most anticipated for the year. I think it's. I think of everybody's most anticipated film of the year. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I. You know what I like about the post-apocalyptic uh, fashion sense is just the idea of like, well, the world's ending. Uh, we should no longer hide our uh, sadomasochistic proclivities. Fuck it. We'll all dress in S and M bondage gear at all times. <laughs> Why? And I can be the rock and ro- I can be the Alatola of rock and roller. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's bad to have over expectations about a film. Absolutely. Oh God, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, sometimes it's better to go to a movie. We've all had this experience where you go in expecting not much, and you come out completely blown away. Oh my God, I didn't expect that. But the reverse is, you know, when you think that this is going to be the movie of all movies and it lifts you down and sometimes like I said in in the case of The Shining you go back and you watch it again and again and you begin to appreciate it more of what Kubrick was trying to do but at the time we were expecting something completely different well that you happened know, we, that happened to you with uh, Inherent Vice Jim didn't it oh, oh boy <laughs> now I love it yeah it's it's way up there on my uh, list Because it, it, it wasn't even in your top 25 right. uh, when we did our year-end episode. Yep. But you, you went back and saw it a second time. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> much like a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, now that I think about it, um, the audience walked out pissed off. And I don't know. I got a transgressive thrill out of that. But most importantly, I just fell in love with the movie and decided, you know what? I don't have to know every plot detail. I just love the mood and I love what he does. And it also helped to um, reading crying of lot 49 and just sort of getting a feel of what Pynchon's going for that uh, paranoia and drug fueled haze. Um, you know, so I, I just sort of went with it. It's not something I can actively defend as a masterpiece of any kind. It's just something that I've grown to love. Thankfully. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I I mean I don't watch many trailers for that very reason, Sergio, and I don't yeah like even this very podcast uh, we've had people on to tell us about you know films coming out of Sundance or films coming out of different film festivals, and I never listen to those episodes because you know I wa- like last year I walked I walked into a theater I saw a screening of Cheap Thrills I had no idea what the premise was and I loved it so much and. Uh, it's it is funny how like people I mean it's obviously the shining is the perfect example of a movie in which you can bring stuff to it because mm-hmm. they made that movie room 237 about it but like it is funny how you think 
you're an intelligent, objective sort of – well, I mean I've seen so many movies. I appreciate film as an as a medium. I, I appreciate film history. Like I can walk into a movie and then I can see the movie and when I walk out, I will have a somewhat enlightened view of what that film was. And then you see it two or th- three more times and you realize like – Oh, you're kind of just a baby the first time you see a movie. You don't know exactly what's mm-hmm. uh, going on or uh, or how you should feel about it or how you even feel about it. Sometimes even just the the being too preoccupied with what is happening or what is right. going to happen next can blind you to other parts of the movie that are great. Well, I had the experience recently with uh, Foxcatcher, which I did not care for. The first time I saw it, I found it a rather cold, remote film. Same Watching here. it again, I've really grown to really like that picture hmm. and appreciate it much more. Because, um, in a way, as you said, I, you know, I had certain expectations, and um, I knew the story because I had. I remember reading it years ago in Vanity Fair, so I knew the story, and but I did not expect. Bennett Mears' approach to it. And uh, watching it again, I really began to appreciate more what he did in that picture. Now, uh, which is the brother who is still alive? Is it Dave or Mike? I can't, Mike, I can't I think remember it's, which one. I think it's Mark. Or Mark, is it... Mark, I mean. Yeah. yeah. Mark's not happy with the film. Of course, right. he tweeted. <laughs> I heard about that. And I think in a, in a drunken rage, literally. Uh, he was very, very upset, and actually he said that he's going to give a press conference after the Oscar ceremony, <laughs> after the Oscar Awards, to tell his side of the story because he's very, very upset about the movie. Well, this, that was uh, 2014, and 2014 ended up being the year in which people sort of were forced to draw lines as to how much it mattered to them. Uh, that fictional films based on true stories where they diverted from oh yeah the Soma, true story. <laughs> so like American everyone's sniper like, Ameri- yeah exactly uh, fox catcher okay but he, yeah but the thing about it is that there has there has never been a feature film based on the true incident that was 100% accurate never right. there's never been a document there's never been a documentary never. <laughs> like, right. forget fictional yep. films. There's never been a documentary that hasn't right, been true. completely Not subjective. Because a documentary, you're talking about one filmmaker from his point of view. Mm-hmm. And and so when he went out with After Selma, I guarantee you, because it's been done, it was done with a hurricane, it was done with um, Zero Dark Thirty, it was a campaign by some studio, the Weinstein Company, Warner Brothers, somebody, <laughs> to... Because when, when Selma Start was first being screened in Los Angeles and New York, it was the front runner. That was it. That was the movie. Everybody was saying it. The, the film to beat for the Oscars is Selma. And somebody started this thing to lessen its chances, which worked very well. It's been done before. Usually it works. Sometimes it doesn't, like in the case of A Beautiful Mind. The uh, Whispering Campaign did not work on that film, but usually it does. And that's what happened here. I, somebody, some studio, somebody somewhere started this whole thing about Selma, and it worked. You know what? If, it, if, if the only thing that does is lay bald how political and uh, how political the Academy Awards is, I yeah. think that's worth it. <laughs> just, if only, 
because it's like Selma's such a great movie, and there's so many other movies that are so great that you know that fall victim to this sort of these uh, quote unquote think pieces that are you know uh, suggested by other filmmakers campaigning. Right. Exactly. I was I was on a friend a friend of mine's podcast, and I was telling him last week or so. I said, "Look, keep in mind that the Oscars, particularly when you're talking about best picture." a lot of times best director, best actor, best actress, it really goes to the person who actually gave the best performance. Oh, yes, yeah. sometimes they do, but it's other reasons. They made a great comeback. They, um, it's, been, it's their time, you know? Uh, the other one is what I call the compensation Oscar. That's the Oscar you give to people who are not going to have a major film career. You know, you're never going to be elite. So here's an Oscar that's going to sort of make up for that. Like, who, for what, example, who, yeah. Okay, Forrest Whitaker. Forrest Whitaker is not a leading man. He'll never be a leading man. He's a character actor, right? Um, who's the actress? Uh, uh, Octavia Spencer. You know, she's a character actress. She's she never in a million years will be a leading actress. Um, and so they give you an award like that, you know, to make up for the fact that this is it, this is about as good as it's going to get for you. Yeah. Monique, what's the last time you saw Monique in anything? No, I, I was expecting Monique to try to, to at least try a dramatic career after Precious, but I guess that is very hard for an, for an obese black woman in Hollywood. Well, no, no. First of all, first of all, too, she's lost a lot of weight. You haven't seen her lately. She oh, I guess I haven't. Weight. Number two is that she is in a small independent film called Blackbird, which barely got released. Uh, dramatic film. Um, I have not seen it. Um, very few people have. Um, but also, she's just hard to work with. She has a notorious reputation. Oh, yeah. Notorious yeah. reputation. And, you know, I, she's fallen out with everybody she's ever worked with. But, no, she's no longer the fat lady anymore. She's now, uh, uh, she's slimmed down quite a bit. I don't know if she's changed her attitude, but um, she's not the same. She doesn't take up the same space like she used to. Sure. Hmm. But, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a role out there for her, I guess. I don't know. Nobody wants to take up. But that's on top of That's a conversation Oscar. I was, wondering uh, when John Good- I was wondering when John Goodman was going to get his. Because eventually they have to give John Goodman an Oscar for something. <laughs> And it's not going to be his best role because that was, you know, it's not going to be yeah, whatever he gets an Oscar for. It's not going to be Barton Fink. No. But eventually he's going to play some, like, sad old man in some prestige film and they're going to have to give him an Oscar. Well, the same right. thing happened with uh, Jeff Bridges. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Jeff Bridges right. is going to have to get an Oscar. So we might as well give it to him for Crazy Heart. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's like um, you know... I guess we're going to have to give an Oscar to Meryl Streep because she hasn't had one in 20 years. But Iron Lady was nowhere her best performance, and it's a terrible picture. Mm. You know, Al Pacino, son of a woman, he's horrible in that film. <laughs> he's horrible in that picture. But you had to give it to him because he'd been nominated so many times, and, you know, you gotta, it, he was, it was his time. You know, a lot of people will say that Smart um, um, uh, Scorsese um, got it for The Departed. He shouldn't have gotten it for God knows how many other movies he made. Yeah, sure, no but, And Departed is a good film. Departed is a good film. But, you know, he, he shouldn't have gotten it for Raging Bull, maybe Taxi Driver, something. But, you know, it was his time. 
It was, you know, if he was long overdue, at least it was a good pitcher. Yeah. You know, so speaking of... Uh, so so that's about as far as Oscar talk you're going to get from this podcast. Yeah, I was good, just going to say. Good. Thank um, you. Thank you. Speaking yeah. of uh, reputation, you know what's known as the greatest musical of all time? What? Singing in the snow. Uh, I don't I'm think that's singing in the snow. You got, you, got, you got the weather a little mixed up. It's uh, singing in the rain. Oh. Uh, I would not agree. Best musical of all time. Fantastic, amazing film. We're probably going to be talking about one of that film's directors, Stanley Donan. Oh, we are? This episode. Yeah. Awesome. Um, we've actually <laughs> we've talked quite a bit uh, already. Before we get to what we watched, Jim, do you have any business you want to take care of? Mm-hmm. Hey. I was on the uh, Cinecast, why, you know, enduring Matt Gamble screaming at me about liking Inherent Vice, as well as uh, talking about um, the best films of 2014, in which both Nightcrawler and Inherent Vice, they both shot up after rewatches. So um, that was a good listen. Go check, a, yeah, go check that out. Uh, that one's as long as that... That one, that move, that that episode was as long as the Fastbender movie, right? That was like a four-hour episode. Yeah, I didn't listen to. It. I can't. I don't have that kind of time. Okay, I literally, I don't. I'm unemployed, and I don't have that kind of time. You know, uh, I go to sleep with earbuds. I wake yeah. up with earbuds. I'm at the gym with earbuds. I'm at work with earbuds. So, there you what go. I need is a, a Chris Hardwick uh, row three wrap up. Uh, recap show <laughs> talk, <laughs> talk in row three that's no, what i need no. i need it cut down into digestible chunks okay well i did write a piece about uh amazon pilots that premiered recently since um i just checked the mo- most of them out and i was a huge fan of the man in the high castle which surprise surprise philip k dick adaptation uh-huh very good very good pilot um I would recommend people see it, but um, you got to vote for it in order to see more, which I hope people do because it's really good. Putting together sort of a label of sorts, like I have, you know, I have a list of things that I wanted to accomplish in my life, and one of them was to have some kind of record label. And nowadays, it's just as easy as hosting a podcast. It really is. Um, you just go to Bandcamp and sign up and find people that you like. Um, and that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm just uh, putting together my own label and my own roster. And it is Oedipa Records, named go, go after ahead. the lead character in The Crying of Lot 49. Which I suspected. Uh, go ahead and give the uh, web address for that, Jim. It is oedipa-records.bandcamp.com. So you have your own record label. Obviously, your own music is going to be on that record label. Who 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 else is on that record label? Um, well, Liam Campbell, who's a guy I knew from way back when, when I used to live in Calumet City, Illinois, um, as well as this collaboration I did with the great Megan Lamb, who you might remember from the David Cronenberg episode, possibly one of the best singers I've ever met, um... Our little collaboration is on there, and that's called the Anniversary Party. Um, I don't think – is there anybody else? I think there might be – I think you have four artists currently on your label. Go ahead. Dig deep. Who's who's the other artist, Jim? Hmm. 
I think it's uh, Patrick Ripoll. Oh. oh my God, it's me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Put, I put you on there. You've uh, you've re-released uh, my two uh, electronic music LPs, uh, Disorient and New Album. Yes, I did. Because I love them. I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoy them, and hopefully other people can enjoy them too. So if you go to that uh, label, you can listen to uh, Jim's Hardy back catalog. Not all of it, of course. Yeah, I'm uh, a Hardy boy. You're, you're a Hardy boy, and uh, you. But uh, as well as uh, Liam Campbell and uh, the Anniversary Party. Um, yeah, you totally should check that out, and. I know there's going to be a few more to come too, so it's exciting. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I wanted to bring that up as well. Um, did I talk about on the last podcast about being on the uh, Pop Culture Lens podcast? I think you did. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that's out of the way. Go to popculturelens.blogspot.com or possibly.wordpress.com. Just Google Pop Culture Lens uh, Carnival of Souls. You'll find my the podcast I was on where we talked about Carnival of Souls and feminism and stuff like that. Um, but also, uh, I am working on a new uh, album of music. Um, yes. A, uh, maybe a perhaps Ill, an ill-fated uh, um, venture, given the way I've talked about my music previously. Or maybe I'm just a malcontent. You know, I recently watched the, uh, the, the documentary that Martin Scorsese produced on Val Luton. And Val Luton – Oh, I, wow. I, 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 related, I related to him very strongly because Val Luton was never – particularly happy with his career or the films he was making. Mm. Uh, and uh and I've never been happy with my with the albums. Yeah. Well, even I've, even Woody Allen doesn't like Manhattan, so Well, yeah, sure. There's weird lapses of uh of logic like that, but like Val Luton was just sort of a depressive all around and that's me as well. So, I've never liked my folk music, but here I am. I'm doing another uh project, an album of singer-songwriter stuff, and I thought it might be interesting for people who have never written an album to see sort of the thought process that goes behind like, all right, I've, de- I've dedicated myself to making an album. What does that mean? I'm writing songs. What does it mean to sit down and say, I'm going to write a song? So I've actually started a blog where I'm tracking all the progress of my new album. It's Patrick's new album dot um, And it's just like, I put up my demos. I've, I've talked frankly about what I don't like and what I do like about these demos. I've talked frankly about what I don't know is going to happen with this. It might end up being an album that never gets made. But um, at any rate, it's something I've dedicated to putting time and effort towards. So if you're at all interested in the nuts and bolts of what it means to be a songwriter, um, uh, then uh, you should go to uh, patricksnewalbum.wordpress.com because – uh, I've been updating it uh, pretty thoroughly. Pretty much every thought I have towards making the album and every thought I had towards these songs and every half-baked idea that I'm like, well, that could maybe be a song I've put up on there. So uh, I have – it's basically if you follow video games, the game developers often have what's called the dev blog where they'll – where they will oh, blog yeah. – they will often blog about like, oh, well, we tried to build this level today and this is the problems we ran into and stuff. And it can often be very illuminating. Maybe you could do a documentary, Indie Rock, the movie. I don't, I don't think so. I think oh, it's terrible. Okay. But uh, yeah, so um, that is what I've been working Exciting on. Exciting times for music, that's for sure. 
I was I was temp- I was tempted to cancel the show tonight on account of the fact that John Carpenter's new Lost Themes record is now available to stream. That's do you all know, I, that's all you, I want to do tonight. Do you know much about that album? No. Okay, because I wanted to ask you if that is actually themes he had written previously. I don't think so. Or if it's just a new album of music that he's done recently that is calling that he's calling John Carpenter's Lost Themes. I think he's just calling it Lost Themes. Either way, I've heard one track from it. They leaked one track that that whatever label is putting that out, and it's fantastic. Uh huh. So I, I do want to. I want to listen to that as well. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so excited. You know what else I'm excited about? What? What we watched? Watched? Okay, cool. Yeah. What could it be? Hmm. Let's find out. Okay. Michael Mann. It's, hmm. Yeah, it's. It, I like the film. It plays oh. as Michael Mann's greatest hits. A uh, little bit from Heat Here, a little bit from The Insider Here, uh, <laughs> a little bit of this movie here, a little bit of that movie there. Um, I am surprised how badly it did. I mean, it just absolutely tanked. It is literally, this is January, and already it literally is one of the biggest bombs of the year. Yeah, that's because that American Sniper just dominated. My God. I mean, I don't know yeah, if it's just... Well, I don't know. I figured it would be of interest due to, you know, a lot of publicity... Or not publicity, but a lot of media coverage surrounding hacking. Yeah, well, you know, Universal didn't play that up. They didn't yeah. play that up at all. And you would think that... the And also, I don't know if January was the right spot for that movie. I really don't. Hmm. Maybe March, maybe April, but yeah. you know January. I was surprised when they go release that film in mid January, and I go like, "Oh, really? A film like this?" Um, uh, but Universal did not play up that hacker angle at all. 
surprisingly, they did not. Also, nobody knew what the film damn film was about. They did a very poor marketing job really telling you what the film was about. The, the posters didn't tell you. Trailers nope. didn't tell you. Nope. So, and one thing that's evident is that people go to movies when they know what the film is about. That's always been the case. They want to know what the film is about. If they don't know, they won't go see it. I didn't know what and, it was about. I didn't even know it was Michael Mann until I started seeing everything on my Twitter and Letterboxd just blowing up over Black Hat. Right. Yeah. You know, and compared to American Sniper, uh, and, and really what, what Black Hat is, it's just a James Bond movie. It literally oh. is a James Bond hmm. movie. I mean, even when you find out what the villain is really up to, it's literally a variation of what Goldfinger was doing. <laughs> it literally is. And I go like, ah, oh, it's a Bond film. He travels around the world. He's got this beautiful woman always with him. He fights all the bad guys. It's, it's a Bond film. Um, but in terms of American Sniper, um, Eric Childress of E-Film Critic, he, I think he hit it. He said, Warner Brothers did something brilliant. They marketed that film as something for everyone. Hmm. It, it was marketed as an R-rated action film. It was marketed as a war film. It was marketed as an anti-war film. It was marketed as a domestic drama. It had yeah. something for everyone in that picture, right? Right. A comedy so, tonight. Right. So, therefore, everybody's going to go... Everybody is seeing it. Now, I didn't care for the picture at all. Um... But it's a, you know, the film has done already over $200 million domestically in maybe wow. two weeks, two and a half weeks, $200 million. At the rate it's going, because I do box office for every Sunday for uh, Channel Net, and at the rate it's going, it's going to be in the top five of Warner Brothers' all-time biggest hits domestically. Mm. It's going to beat at least a number of Harry Potter movies. Uh, easily. It's going to outgross Half-Blood Prince, Deathly Hallows, Deathly Hallows 1, Part 1, um, uh, Goblet of Fire. It's going to outgross all of them at the rate it's going. Yeah, no, that's, that's unheard of. I, I was not expecting that at all, especially in January. Um, right. Nobody's and, expecting it. Now, yeah. because of the situation with the weather, that always affects box office this week. But... Um, it's, it's a steamroller. I call mm-hmm. it the steamroller this Sunday. It's a steamroller effect. You can't stop it. It's going to go on forever. It is $64 million this week, past weekend. So you were a fan of Black Hat because it was a lot like a Bond film. I'm, yeah. I'm curious, is he still shooting in the sort of digital, grainy style? Yeah, that's the problem, that's the problem I still have with it. You know, I... I've never been a fan of digital photography. I'm a still old-fashioned film guy. Sure. I realize that's the way the world is going. But the thing, thank God for Tarantino. He's shooting his new film in 70 millimeter. Yeah. Also, um, uh, Alejandro Eratua, um, who's shooting the new, his new Western with DiCaprio, he said he's shooting it also several sequences in 70 millimeter. Hmm. So, um, uh, but, you know, with all this technology, with the Alexa camera and the Sony cam, it looks good. I don't know why he's using – it looks like he's shooting it on a cell phone. I don't know why you're using this cheap stuff. I, I don't that's, either. That's an, that's an aesthetic choice that he's making. I don't know why he's doing it. I think he feels that it's more realistic, I suppose. But, 
you know, it, it makes a blur of the action sequences, particularly at night. Oh, God, yeah, that's one thing I clearly remember from Public Enemies. And right. Miami Vice. Yeah, the last right. shootout of Miami Vice. Ugh. I didn't see right. the whole thing of that. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, a, it's because it's called artifacting, where you have this sort of after image, and you can't see anything clearly. And I go like, will you stop doing that? Yeah, you know? no kidding. I, on, the uh, one hand, on, the, on the other hand, though, like, is, is there anyone that – that goes to the lengths that Michael Mann is going that works in the Hollywood system that has such a specific, specific aesthetic style. <laughs> like uh, the other, I'm kind of glad that there's at least someone out there who's going out and doing weird shit. Even if like, I don't like Miami Vice. I'm no, I'm by far, I'm, I'm in no way a, uh, a Michael Mann sort of apologist who goes out and says, Oh, Miami Vice, it's a forgotten classic. This, that, no, but like, yeah, no, no I don't, I don't agree at all. But like, but like, I do like that he's at least doing something unusual and different and in a more mainstream space, you know? <laughs> it's it's at least interesting to me. Yeah, but if it interferes with the enjoyment of the picture, then what good is it? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, Miami Vice had a lot of other problems other than the aesthetic. Uh, but I, I'm just, I mean, as a diehard supporter of computer chess... I feel that I feel that there is some way in which the aesthetic of very obvious video that is not 24 frames per second uh, that aesthetic can lead to something uh, that is both beautiful and interesting and compelling. Um, and I hope I hope eventually Michael Mann finds it, whatever he's looking for. Well, he said he originally he was going to shoot. Public enemies on film, and at the very, very last minute, he decided to go digital. I don't know yeah. why he did it. You know, because right, it, I think, and I really like public enemies. I like public enemies a lot, but that's the one thing that hurts. That hurts about the picture, especially that shootout oh, yeah. in the lodge, which is a mess. Yeah, um, because kinetically, it's a very exciting sequence, but um, I couldn't see what was going on. Yeah, visually, it's like, oh, geez, what a mess. You know, mm-hmm. and and right because it can't uh, unless you have a really 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 good cameraman like a um, oh the British camera Roger Deakins yeah who can shoot digitally like a film like um, uh, Prisoners which is what was was which was one of my absolute favorite films last year I absolutely no I'm sorry it didn't come out last year it came out a year before last. I loved Prisoners, and he shot that film digitally, and you can't tell. It was just, even the nighttime sequences, daytime sequences, it was just so beautifully lit. Yeah, same director you know? as uh, Enemy, which I also really loved. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's weird, like, I I was mildly interested in Black Hat, especially after seeing um, Citizen Four, I just became interested in cryptography and just, you know, the hacking scenario portrayed in a movie. But I was like, oh, it's two and a half hours long. It's, I, I bet it's digital. I just, I'll wait for it. I'm, I'm still going to watch it at some point this year, but um, I'm going to wait. As a, as a, as I think everybody else, you know, is everybody else point. did. It, it was a, it was it was badly handled. It was badly handled, yeah. and um, I don't know why Universal did what they did, but it was just a badly handled, badly marketed, mm-hmm. uh, badly released. Um, that film could have done a whole lot better. 
And which is the main reason why, even though they deny it, why Warner Brothers pushed back the release of In the Heart of the Sea to Christmas, when originally it was supposed to come out in March, the Ron Howard film, the Moby Dick, Ron Howard oh. picture. And, and he, Ron Howard said, well, they pushed it back because it seemed, to be, it seemed to him more of a fall, late fall Christmas release. No, because he had this, this film tanked, and you don't want to taint your film, another Chris Hensworth movie. <laughs> with a film he was in that just tanked, right? Yeah. So push it back to December. So after The Adventures 2 comes out, so you can ride on the success of that. So, Patrick. Yeah. You know what I love? What do you love? Survival films. Do you? Man versus nature stories. Can you can you name a handful of films? I don't know this about you. What well, can you name a handful of films you love that are survival films? You know, like The Gray is kind of a survival film. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm trying to think of what's the top. I thought you loved these films. I thought this is your favorite subgenre. What about Jerry? How about Jerry? You love Jerry? Yeah, of course. Okay, of course, there you course, go. So course. there's Jerry. What about yeah. Wild? Yeah. Okay. I think we've talked about that one before. Maybe Into the Wild. Into the Wild as well. It's a good one. Yeah. Um. How about Deliverance? Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. What about Walkabout? You a fan of Walkabout? What do you think? I don't know. I don't. You weren't on that episode. <laughs> what do you, mean you don't know. Of you weren't course. on that episode. Oh, I thought you knew. Well, I was kind of on that episode. I at least reviewed that movie and proclaimed it as one of my all-time favorites. Okay. Um, but Meek's Cutoff? Yeah? Would sure. That... Okay. <laughs> okay. Well. All right. So we've established your cred. That's all I wanted. I just wanted to put you through the ringer to really make sure the audience knew that you weren't you just that You were putting me through the ringer. You weren't just pulling something out of your ass that you're actually a fan of the survival film. Yeah. I should probably be. Should probably make sure I have all my lists of all the things I love pinned on at all, at all times. Yeah, I, you never know when I'm going to test you. I know that's what it feels like every time. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I look forward to on this show the most. Patrick's tests. <laughs> Patrick's tests. Yeah. Sure. So it's what, good, what's it's the good survi- brain food? It's good brain food. So what's the survival film you saw recently? It's a film. Oh boy! <laughs> oh boy! He's giving the he's giving the graduation speech again, or he he's he takes enough uh, six minutes to get to the point. You know, Sergio, if you want to go and walk and use the restroom or whatever, no one's going to blame you. <laughs> it's called Wake and Fright. Okay, I don't know this. What what is this, <gasps> Patrick? Film? You don't know this? Wake and Fright? No. I it, the title sounds vaguely familiar. Maybe I've heard mm. of it. It's a film, unafraid. To dissect the world in a way that the villain of the film becomes the setting, the environment. Um, it sent chills down my spine. <laughs> it's so creepy and bizarre. Um, and a lot like Walkabout because it takes place in Australia. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a, is it like an Australian, like a hardcore kind of Australian horror film? Yeah, well, not horror. I would say it's no, nah, it's thriller. Okay, I mean it has horrific elements to it. 
but it's know. not of the a uh, hundred bloody acres Wolf Creek. No, no uh, tradition. No. 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 Um, I I would imagine that it's got to be brought up in the. I haven't seen this yet, but I probably should. The uh, not quite Hollywood is that the name of it? Where it covers Ozploitation. That is the name of the documentary. Yes, I, I'm sure it's brought up, even though I don't think it's necessarily like an exploitation film per se. But it follows a few days in the life of a teacher, and he's sort of um, indentured to his job in the outback. He's a, you know he just has to keep working until he can pay off a thousand dollar bond, and he sort of just loathes how sequestered he is and how he has to, you know, work his mundane job. And he is going on vacation. He's going to Sydney to see his uh, girlfriend and, uh, you know, just escape his, uh, obviously he's got the summer off, but I think something happens to him. He stops in a town uh, known as the Yaba. I, I know it's got a, more proper name than that, but that's how they re- keep referring to it. Um, but uh, it's a, it's a, like a v- in, insanely um, not necessarily lower class, but it's just a, a working man's kind of mining town. And he he intends on just staying there for the night, and then he'll like just go back uh, to Sydney. But he he the the town itself sinks its claws into him. And he gets caught up in very emasculating situations um, involving money, lust, and hunting, and Donald Pleasance. Um, uh. Yeah, so it's it's very character-driven as we sort of watch him decline as a result of his many transgressions. And we slowly watch him lose his shit. <laughs> um it plays at times like this fever dream with these crazy close-ups and dissolves and hallucinations. Um, I haven't seen a lot of uh, Winyell yet, but I imagine that like there's just that aspect of surrealism just sort of interspersed as he like gets really drunk and takes drugs and just it, it, it winds up just you know losing his mind. And you sort of get a lot of get a huge sense of how vast the landscape can be, and also how isolating it is. And um, a doctor played by Donald Pleasance shows up, and he is just gleefully unsettling and hedonistic. He lives in this cabin in the middle of nowhere, and uh, just you know, all he does is drink, pretty much. Um, so it's just it's a very pointed film um, about how fragile the human psyche can be to its surroundings and just, you know, how susceptible we can be to influence. Um, But it's just, it's just, it's just one of those films where he, you know, one character just keeps, you know, winding up in very intense situations. One involves, like I said, gambling. Another, he, uh, tries to seduce or be seduced by um, a particular woman, and that fails. And then there's this incredible sequence involving kangaroo hunting um, that I guess 
cause an uproar a little bit because I get I don't know if it would cause an uproar necessarily, but it's just it's just really intense and it looks so realistic and I think that's because the director actually cut um, footage from a documentary into this sequence, which is really interesting. Um, and this director, um, he went on to do First Blood. So, <laughs> he, he, uh, what's his name? Ted uh, Kochev, I think that's yeah, how you say. Ted Kochev, right? Yeah. Who and he would also go on to do Weekend at Bernie's, another film about survivalism, kind of. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Wake and Fright is a new favorite of mine. I absolutely loved it. I can't wait for you to see this, Patrick. It's really fascinating and intense. I'll put it on my list. Please, please. Well, what you're talking year? about some... Well, I'm sorry, you talk, well, yeah, what you, I think they came out when? I forgot. I want to say in the maybe early 70s? I should probably have that written down. But I mean, it's... Uh, if, uh, yeah, it came out in 71... Um, and I guess it was out of print for the longest time and it was just released maybe a year or two ago, um, on DVD and Blu-ray. So it got, what is this a Scream Factory, uh, release? I don't know. I feel like maybe I heard of this because it was re-released. Cause I have, I follow a lot of friends who are very big into, uh, you know, horror, the horror it's, I don't know how other home video markets are doing. But it, it seems advertises like, it like a horror movie, yeah. Now that I'm looking at it, well, I mean, I, just from the name, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, and uh, the horror home video market is a weird place. Uh, I I don't know of many other genres that have that level of dedicated fan base uh, as far as like special releases and stuff like that. I feel like maybe this was I was the re-release when I heard about this. Yeah, I don't see specifically who put it out, but hmm, that's fine. Yeah, no, it's it's really something to see. Have you, you have you love seen... Donald Pleasance in this? That's for sure. So, did you see that documentary? Uh, Not quite Hollywood. No, I want to now. I should because I have a feeling I would dig it. Since it's I seem good. to enjoy Australian films quite a bit. I mean, it's definitely like it's good purely for information you yeah. get from it it's there's it's not a good documentary <laughs> it's not a great film but uh if you want to know more about you know films like this or or uh, razorback or road games uh yeah road games a, i kind of liked i didn't love it but i liked it yeah yeah i need to see more well, though well speaking of survival movies let me let me take one that i like from 20 years ago just at 1994 the immortal surviving the game, what I see, <laughs> uh, directed I thought, by I, Ernest Dickerson. I thought you were going to say The Edge. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. I love The Edge. I don't remember what year that the came out. The Edge is pretty good. I yeah. forgot yeah. the original title for The Edge. It was called something else. And like Bert the Bear? The Edge at the last minute. The Bear. Was it called Bert <laughs> the Bear or something like that? <laughs> right, maybe. That's a hell of a fight scene. That's a yeah. great fight scene between him and the Bear. That's a great fight scene. So is surviving um, is surviving the game a remake of the most dangerous game? Yeah, there have been many remakes of this. This was one of the one of the variations of it, where Ice T plays a homeless guy, and the game, the bunch of guys take him out in the woods and to hunt him down, not knowing, of course, that he's an ex Vietnam vet, and he Ooh. has various tricks and ways to get rid of the guys uh, who are How hunting him. And of course, this? it has one of the all time great death scenes in the movie. 
all-time great oh, yeah. uh, with uh, Charles Dutton. And uh, what happens is that if you haven't seen the film, and I, I should laugh because it's horrible, but what happens is that uh, the guys are on ATVs, those three real buggy kind of things. And Ice-T rigs his ATV to blow up when he turns on the ignition. So he blows up. It's a big fireball. And when everything's smoking clear, you see Charles Dutton on the ground and literally half of his body's blown away. Uh-huh. The second half of his body's blown away. Uh-huh. And he he goes into this uh, hysteria. It makes me laugh, you know. It, it, just, it kills me. It kills me. Uh-huh. And, and, and it just, and what happens, the, the leader is played by, of the gang, of the hunters is played by, uh, you know, uh, Rucker, uh, Howard. Rucker Howard, right. And so he puts, he strangles him to put him out of his misery. But, and then the, the, it, then the climb, the ending is climax when Rucker Howard dressed as, dressed as a Catholic priest to escape. It's, it's insane, you know. Oh, i got to see it's, this. <laughs> it's truly insane, and you got Gary Busey in the picture, oh, wow, you and go. you got to see. If you haven't seen it, you got to see it. I'm surprised you I haven't. It. it came out during that time when I was totally into these types of movies, like uh, Trespass. I love that one. So, so I've seen a bunch of times. I and I'm a huge. Huge Walter Hill fan. As well, huge you Walter Hill fan. And that one always kind of leaves me always kind of cold. Oh. So, no, but speaking I, of Walter Hill, uh, Southern Comfort yeah. kind of fits in this category. Yeah, see, I love, you see, Southern oh, Comfort, God. I saw not too long ago. That recently came out on Blu ray. Um, yeah. Love Southern Comfort. I oh, love the driver. Mm-hmm. Love the driver. Um, I'll, I'll even defend Red Heat. I mean, I love Walter Hill. I mean, I really do. Um, and but um, Trespass is a film that just always to me just misses, you know. Uh, and considering who wrote it, Robert Zemeckis. Yep. Gee, I wonder why I love it. <laughs> right. I'm kind of a Zemeckis fanboy too, like Eric. So Patrick, what do you have to add to the conversation? Uh, how about seventeen movies? Wait a minute. Are we doing this? I think we're doing this, Jim. Patrick. Yeah. Guess what? Get prepared, son, because it's a lightning round. And then this is the point where we put in music. Or this is the point where the audience hears me say, this is the point we'll put in music. And then they realize that we didn't put in music where we thought we would. At any rate, <laughs> this get a, is... Get a ding sound. Go ahead. Get get something started. I'm trying. Let's see. All right. Hold on. Let me actually look up how many. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. 18. 18 films. I wonder if this will work. Oh, that'll work. That works beautifully. It sound, okay. It's crystal clear. It sounds like you hit a crystal. Um, so, let's see. I have 18 films. You want to give me... Carry the two. 40, 40 seconds. I can do that. All right. Reset. Stopwatch. All right. So... Uh, if you're not familiar with the lightning round, uh, I'm going to talk about all 18 films. I only have 40 seconds to do for each, so I kind of have to shove all of my opinions into 40 seconds. So let's see how this goes. Ready? Yeah, I'm ready. And go. 
All right, Key Largo, uh, John Houston. Uh, John Houston's a great master of building tension. Uh, if you've ever seen Maltese Falcon, you know this. Key Largo, great, great example of that. The script kind of doesn't work all the way. Uh, Humphrey Bogart's character is kind of lame, but Edward G. Robinson is in it, and Edward G. Robinson is great. I can't remember any other movies he was in with Humphrey Bogart other than Bullets or Ballots, which is another uh, underrated movie um and it's got that great thing where it's an old movie in black and white where everyone's hot and sweaty and hot and sweaty and desperate men in black and white they look twice as hot and twice as sweaty and twice as desperate uh i also saw perks of being a wallflower on insistence from my former co-worker Juan. and me and me and you but guess what it's it's garbage it's it's pablum it's it's just tedious it's uh i i had almost no feelings during the whole thing i didn't hate it Necessarily, it wasn't uh, obnoxious, but uh, it's definitely pandering um, in a lot of ways. And uh, I uh, picture a good version of this of this kind of movie. Uh, you know, I in my heart of hearts, there's a version in which people talk or children, you know, teenagers, whatever they talk in ways that I recognize as human beings talk, and not as thirty uh, year olds who project their wishes onto high school characters talk. Um, so perks of being a wallflower, skip it. Oxbow incident, uh, you don't, you shouldn't skip it because, uh, Henry Fonda is great in it. And, uh, the director whose name I can't remember at the moment, he does William a Wellman. wonderful, William Wellman. That's correct. William Wellman does a great job. Um, the script is kind of simplistic. It's kind of just a morality tale. It's just a story of, uh, a lynch mob and sort of the moral ramifications that go with, uh, starting a mob that's hungry to lynch someone when they don't have all the facts in. And in that way, it's like the most simplistic version of 12 angry men ever. Um, but it's short and it is entertaining and it's beautifully shot. Um, it's not a traditional Western by any means. It just kind of happens to be a social drama in which men ride horses. Um, so Oxbow incident's good. Blythe spirit, a David lean film in my, uh, David lean, no coward box that I got from criterion, mm. a beautiful, beautiful technicolor film. Uh, David lean, you might think, Oh, David lean, you know, he, he has the unlimited budget to sort of dazzle you with a hundred thousand extras on screen. But, uh, no, in this film, it's just two people. It's adapted from a play and they're in their sitting room and it looks gorgeous. The, he, that guy could direct a beautiful looking movie. Unfortunately, that guy's touch, not too good for, uh, a crazy comedies. This movie is kind of a wacky romp, uh, madcap kind of a comedy story. And David Lean's touch, uh, doesn't do it any favors. It's a Aww. beautiful movie to look at, but it's not a particularly, funny one um even with uh well i gotta skip that so the world's end one of my favorite films from 2013 good one uh, edgar wright one of my favorite directors i can now definitively say even though this is probably the most uh thematically and emotionally complex of his films this is still definitely my least favorite of the uh of that uh trilogy that he did with uh simon pegg okay. and as hard as it's hard for me to say the word trilogy because i hate that term um but it's still hysterically funny. I just think the more complex emotions going on and the more complex themes and the characters holding back sort of motivations, it ends up kind of gumming the works because you know Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg, they work best when they're sort of doing these clockwork, really fast, really uh, tight comedies. And the more complex emotions gum that up. 2001 is Space Odyssey. It was originally my intention to watch the Kubrick version and the Soderbergh version back to back. And then I watched the Kubrick version and I said, you know what? I've, uh, I've had my 2001 fill. I, it's a utterly gorgeous movie and it's a 
wonderful film, and I think it's more straightforward um, than it gets credit for, uh, obviously, until the third act. And I kind of feel the same way I felt when I was 17 and I first saw 2001, um, which is that the third act is really compelling, but it just loses me and I don't know what it really means. Um, Or I could alternatively say that all of my interpretations for what the third act could mean, they seem lame to me and they don't seem as interesting as the first two acts. So I don't like that very much. I saw Goodbye to Language 3D. Oh, a Godard film. Guess what? I'm not a big fan of Godard. Uh, And it turns out – it turns out I kind of – I kind of almost appreciate a Godard film that's just baldly experimental more than I appreciate his narratives because at least he's not – at least it's not expected for me to care about the characters um, since they're just mouthpieces for his philosophy. Um, people have been saying how dazzling the 3D in this film is, but I think that might be misleading in the way that you think it's a beautiful film and it isn't really a beautiful film. There's some really nice shots in it and there's some things that he does in it that I've never seen before, such as the two side-by-side cameras that are required to shoot 3D and simulate two human eyes. Uh, hmm. One camera pans away. So at one point you're seeing uh, – it's almost like a chameleon vision where the two eyes are on the opposite sides of the head and that's really cool. But not exactly a, a compelling film altogether. House of Wax 3D on the other hand, Vincent Price, fantastic. This is uh, one of Tim Burton's favorite movies and you watch this movie and you're just like, oh, yeah, yeah. This is where he – that's where that scene from Batman's from and that's where <laughs> this shot from Batman's from. And, like he probably watched House of Wax 3D like 15 times before he made Batman and it's a wonderful film it's a it gets a little slow uh towards the end and it's procedural elements the 3D looked wonderful though um both gimmicky and there were actual moments such as where he's this sort of boogeyman chasing this woman down these dark foggy city streets that it looked dazzling and amazing so uh 3D actually used well and I don't mind using up time because uh, my next film is The Interview, <laughs> and The Interview is just a below-average comedy. Yes. And I've never been more relieved than when I saw that uh, Seth Rogen and uh, Evan uh, Goldberg, Goldberg. did uh, yeah, Evan Goldberg did not write this film because I was like, oh, good. Okay, so they haven't completely lost it because I love all their other films. Uh, I don't love all their other films equally, but I think all their other films are really good, and this film is just kind of whatever. Uh, it has some it has some nice moments, but whatever. Uh, the Bitter Tea of General Yen, a Frank Capra film, but probably not what you would expect from Frank Capra. Oh. This film is insanely dark. It has these visions of war that sort of remind me of uh, when I went back and I watched uh, uh, Farewell to Arms by Frank Borsage. These kind of like dark, hellish versions of uh, visions of war, and it's it's. It's definitely aged poorly in terms of its depictions of race, but it's also – it's kind of caught in the middle because at the time it was sort of hated for being too permissive with interracial lust. Um, and it's very, But it's a very interesting film and it's worth seeing and it has some very strong performances even if at the end uh, the story isn't uh, the best. Uh, Hot Fuzz. I ended up seeing all the Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg movies. Hot Fuzz is my absolute favorite. Hot Fuzz is <laughs> – you can say it, it doesn't have to be your favorite. It's the least emotional, and that's the thing. Like a lot of people, they love Shaun of the Dead because Shaun of the Dead has those strong emotions in it. But mm-hmm. Hot Fuzz is the greatest depiction of what it is that those two do, which is setups and pull and payoffs, and then setups and payoffs, and then payoffs that are setups for further payoffs. The entire final thirty minutes of how, of Hot Fuzz are maybe the greatest thirty sustained minutes of comedy I've ever seen in any film, um, and. I love their clockwork energy, even if the tone is a little closer to Zaz than Shaun of the Dead or um, World's End. 
I saw a, a documentary that was produced by Martin Scorsese and narrated by him as well called uh, Val Luton, The Man in the Shadows. It's, uh, it's a TV documentary. It's for TCM, and it feels like it. But they wisely don't really show any talking head interviews. There's like maybe two or three. And mostly it's just clips from his diary as narrated by Elias Codius and uh, Val Lute and uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, commentary, which is kind of closer to uh, Martin Scorsese's journey through American film than it is – to a normal TV documentary. So all you're left doing is watching some of the most hypnotic and haunting images of 40s film. So it's a it's good to watch on that note at the very least. I saw Cigarette Burns, the uh, the film that uh, John Carpenter made as part of the Masters of Horror series. It's not very good. John Carpenter's not engaged in the slightest. He's kind of just picking up a paycheck here. The script is very good. The performances are bad. Um, you know, the, uh, the only thing that you can say for it is it has a premise that I find very interesting, which is sort of an investigative procedural in which the person who's doing the investigating is not a detective, but someone who runs a theater and is trying to track down a print. And I find that world fascinating for, you know, obvious reasons. You like stories about cinephiles, but uh, not a very good film. Uh, Taking of the Pelham 123 is maybe the greatest action film of the 70s. Uh, This is the Taking of the Pelham 123 is the film that John McTiernan must have watched 17 times, like like Tim Burton with House of Wax. John McTiernan watched Taking the Pelham 123 17 times, and then he goes, okay, I think I know how to do Die Hard. Um, it's, it's wonderful. It's hilarious. It's tense. It's funny. Um, it's exciting. And all while mostly being two people talking over the phone, like it's, it's kind of a miracle in that regard. And it's actually a beautiful looking film. Um, and it's the kind of film that I actually, when I was watching it, my conscious thought was, oh, I should show this to my dad because my dad doesn't like too many films, but it's definitely a good dad film in which it, <laughs> it's funny, but it's not too witty or subversive. Uh, anyway, uh, Dial M for Murder, I saw in 3D as well. I saw yeah. House of Wax in 3D and this in 3D at the Gene Siskel Film Center. And uh, Dial M for Murder, it didn't look as good. I can't say whether it was the print or whether my glasses were smudgy or what, but it just had all the usual problems I have when I see 3D movies. Um, and also, it's a play adaptation that takes place on stage that just feels more like a play because it's in 3D. So it's not like Hitchcock has a lot of opportunity to really utilize the form. Um, but the film on its own is good. It's really tense and exciting, and um, it's a really interesting study in uh, character identification because there's five different characters in the film that all have different goals, and depending on what part of the film you're in, you're rooting for different characters. Um, you can root for a murderer. You can root for the detective to find the murderer. It's very interesting. Uh, Pick Me Up is a Larry Cohen uh, film that he made for Masters of Horror, and that's that's really fun. It's nice. It's it's not a great film by any means. It's not. Um, it doesn't do anything amazing. But what it does do is it shows a story that uh, I've never seen before, which is very rare for anthology horror series. And basically, the story is uh, the old uh, urban myth of the hitchhiker who you pick up and then kills you meets the urban myth of the person who picks you up while you're hitchhiking and kills you. And it's these two competing serial killers over this stretch of highway. Um, and Veruza Balk plays a great victim in the middle, and she plays it more pissed than she is scared. And it's 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 got that great irreverent sense of humor um, that uh, Larry Cohen's known for, and it's also got a great Michael Moriarty performance. Um, and then the last one was Terror Train, which is a slasher movie I've seen once before, but I saw it on Netflix, and the print on Netflix... The transfer, it was so dark, I couldn't see half the movie. Um, so I finally borrowed uh, this uh, Blu-ray, the Scream Factory Blu-ray from a friend. Turns out uh, I wasn't missing much. The film 
the first two first hour of the film there's really no tension they don't try to build up any suspense with the kills they just kind of happen and then mostly you're just stuck watching uh, david copperfield <laughs> do magic tricks which is you know they're good tricks i'm always i always like magic but uh it doesn't make a good slasher movie um the end is kind of better than the rest of it but uh it's not bad uh but it's i mean what i should say is it's not enough to uh to sort of lift the whole um, even if Jamie Lee Curtis does give a genuinely good performance. And those are my 18 films. <sighs> Bravo. Man, those lightning rounds don't get any easier. <laughs> no. They sure don't. I've done like can maybe I say, four. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, can I say I saw the Godard film? Yes. Which to me was Godard making fun of himself in many ways. Huh. Godard in a playful mood. Um uh, I also saw House of Wax. I had seen House of Wax before on 3D, but that was many, many years ago. And but this print they had at the film center, and this Sony with the Sony 3M process they had, it yeah. looked amazing. In 3D. It was so absolutely amazing in 3D. It was. It wasn't. It's not Technicolor. It's Eastman color, but it's still so beautiful. Right, right, and. Um, uh, Key Largo, I'm a huge fan of Houston. Huge fan of Houston. Um, Oxbow Incident, I've seen. Uh, I've seen probably all the films you mentioned. But Taken of the Pelham 1, 2, 3, the original version. Yes. Not the remake. The original version, directed by Joseph Sargent, who actually passed away about a month ago. Um, uh, that is a tremendous picture. That, mm-hmm. I have that on Blu-ray. It is... I saw when it came out. That's how long I've been around. And, and, and to be and to be clear, I didn't clarify at the time. That is the version I watched. Right, original yeah. version. It's got also one of the best final shots mm-hmm. ever in a movie. Yeah. You can't give it away. It's a punchline to a joke they were building on, but you didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when it, when the punchline comes, what, you fall out laughing because it is pitch perfect. Pitch perfect. That's you had. That's all you have to do. End the movie there. And they do. They they so rarely end the movie exactly where it needs to. That is exactly where they need to end that movie. Right. It sounds like I need to see the bitter tea of uh, General Yen. It's interesting. I think that too. Yeah. That's. It's an inter- I'm not a Capra fan. That, but that's one of his more interesting yeah. pictures. What, that's it, it's what more, it sounds like. It's, it's not the typical Capricorn shtick that yeah. you're uh-huh. more used to. It's the 30s. It's before that. And it, it was, I think it was the first film to be when Radio Music Hall – I was reading a, uh, a Vincent Minnelli biography. So I found out about his time at Radio Music Hall and how they used to pair these live theater engagements with uh, feature films. That's and true. Yeah. I think Bitter Tea of General Yen was either the first or one of the first films to play at Radio Music Hall. And women's groups hated it. Like it was – it, it caused such a controversy because um, – oh my god. Why can't I remember this actress's name? She's so great. Barbara Stanwyck? Yeah. Barbara Stanwyck in it is so openly lustful of this uh, Chinese general and who, of course, because of the time it was made, it was played by a Swedish actor. But but like the – she has this sort of erotic fantasy of – of the general like breaking in her door and coming into a room and he's sort of this Fu Manchu character and then this right. mass and then this masked man who's kind of like the shadow like he jumps in and he saves her and then you know they embrace and they kiss and the you know she takes off the mask and it's the general again and it's this like it's this erotic fantasy that you don't would never ever expect from a, a film from 
that time, except I guess maybe it was pre-code. I can't... I, yeah, I'm thinking it's pre-code. I'm thinking it came out in 33. Yeah. The code came out in 34. So, yeah, it's a pre-code film. And it's and it's all the better for it. And it's, right. it's very dark. And it's just, you know, like the depictions of Shanghai during the Civil War are just bodies piled everywhere and everything is on fire. And it just looks like Inferno. It just looks like hell. And I, I can definitely imagine... Uh, it inspiring because just knowing how big of a Capra fan he is, like Spielberg's take on uh, Empire of the Sun, uh, it's kind of the similar feeling mm. where everything's sort of going to chaos. Um, it's a good, it's a good movie. You should check it out. Which, I is, will. which is one of his most underrated movies. I really, yeah. really like Empire of the Sun. Absolutely, I, I I think it's a terrific movie. Yeah, uh, the more I young, think about it, the more I love. A very like young it. Christian Bale. I think it's really good in the film. Uh, there's one line of dialogue that's really bad, but other than and one line, but other than and I think I think one of the reasons why the film was not a particularly big hit is because there really is no father figure in that movie. Usually, when you have a kid, you know, who's alone and struggling, there's some character who is a father figure. There's not nothing like that in the picture. It's not John Malkovich. Yeah, not you're not allowed to get close. About the you kids. can't get you can't get close enough to John Malkovich as a viewer, right? Right, and I think that turned off people. Um, I, I because it's a, it's a movie about survival, about how this kid, based on a true story, how he survived in a prison of war camp during World War II, and everybody was out for survival. You know, um, they didn't care if you were a kid; they were out for themselves. Hey, I'm somehow I'm going to make it, even when. He comes back later in the movie of uh, uh, Malkovich's character. He leaves the kid again. Yeah, that's another survival story. Prop, yeah, prop, it's survival <laughs> prop, story. Right. Props to Spielberg for for doing that, though. Yeah. <laughs> for not turning Malkovich's character into the father figure. Right. In which, yeah, there's another version of that film in which instead of Malkovich, it's Kevin Costner playing that character. No, I was going to say it's George <laughs> Michael. Okay, well there you go. Well, <laughs> that's a that's that's more of a pun, Jim. But, oh uh, that's, shit, that's more wordplay. But uh, okay, yeah, like there's there's another version of that film where like he's the uh, lovable like kept where uh, Malkovich's character is the lovable rogue who is yeah. rough towards him at first, but then grows to love uh, his freewheeling spirit. And I love that. I love that it has the typical Spielberg sort of um, enamored with imagination. And with that sort of thing, but it's in service of a story that's sort of about denial um, as yeah. opposed to – I like movies about denial too. I got to make a list. Yeah. Well, there's, there's – <laughs> well, there's Empire of the Sun and if you want to go to World War II again, there's also uh, – A Woman Under Life, the Influence maybe? Life is Beautiful. That's a good film about denial. Uh, White Material. That's a good film about denial. Yeah. White Men Can't Jump. White Men Can't Jump. Yeah. That's a film about denial. <laughs> Um, and also in in, in uh, Empire of the Sun, there's this one thing that it always gets me because it's exactly the same thing I would have done if I was that kid's age. It's when the American bombers finally attack the uh, the camp. And what does the kid do? He runs up to the top of a building to watch the planes. He doesn't run for cover. Yeah. And that's I said, really, that's what I would do. That's very memorable. Yeah. I would run up to the top. It's like if there's a thunderstorm, I'm going to open up the window and stick my head out. Yeah, me too. It's like, yeah, it's like that's what I would do. I would get up as close as I can to those planes and watch them bomb the camp. 
I mean, that's what kid. That's what a kid would do. Hey, Jim, is there anything you want to say about Perks being a wallflower in his defense? <laughs> Not really, because I found it. I found it basically to be the high school version of Garden State. Like I found it very. Oh, no. no, no, absolutely, absolutely. The high school. It's instead of this song will change your life. It's stand on top of this car as this other safe like song that 30 year old men love this Bowie song heroes like that'll change your life. Like, yeah, but I mean the author directly, you know, chose those songs from the book or, you know, he wrote about them. Yeah, 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 I know it's directed by the author. It's written by the author. Is it directed by the author? I think it's directed by the author. Huh? It's nowhere near as good as pump up the volume. And I bet if I watch it again, I'll probably bump it down a half star knowing me. Yeah, it, it is It is directed as well. It's written and directed by the author of the novel. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. It's rare that that ever happens. Yep. No, I thought it was a good portrayal of introversion. I really don't have a whole lot to say in its defense. I just, it, was, it was one of I your favorite films, but it was one of your favorite films of that year, right? The Masters replaced it, so. Okay. See, that just that's exactly what happens now with Paul Thomas Anderson movies. He starts off a little bit lower, and then I watch it a second time, like, oh, yeah, this is great. So I'll bump off whatever I had at number 10 down the list. That's what's happening. Okay. So anytime he releases a movie now, I know what to expect. Yeah, that's a director we were talking about um, taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, and how it has these... I would agree if I had to pick like my list of favorite endings. There it is. That one's right near the top. But with Paul Thomas Anderson's last two movies, uh, <laughs> those endings are a big, huh? Why did it end there? Like, just subverting your expectations of how a movie should end. Even even the second time for uh, Inherent Vice? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I found it to be a little bit more satisfying now that I knew what to expect and I knew, okay, it's going to end now. Um, but it's it's abrupt and unclear as to thematically what it's trying to convey in its final minutes, almost like The Master, uh-huh. which I don't think is a bad thing. It just leaves a lot for you to ponder. And um, I, I imagine that a fascinating bonus episode two in the future would just be us talking about the master and their advice because we 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 said we were going to do that after the master came out we were going to watch it a second true we never did so maybe we could do that once inherent advice comes out on blu-ray yeah once it comes out on blu-ray i'll i'll watch it a couple times yes i'll make it i'll make sure to watch it more than once i'll finally watch the master a second time um and i will defend them both in case you don't like them yeah yeah no no, no, (laughs) that's fine patrick i'm Overjoyed. Yeah. Um, we're going to make them laugh. Are we? I, maybe. Um, All right. You better reference a movie other than Singing in the Rain right now. Quick. What's your favorite What's your favorite <laughs> number from On the Town? And then turn that into a segue. I can't. Stop it. Stop it with these tests. Huh. Um, let's talk about Stanley. Let's talk about Stan Lee. Did he no, Stanley. Did he have any moments like uh, like Stephen King with Maximum Overdrive, where they just like, well, fuck it, let's let him direct a movie? <laughs> That'd be great. If, like, especially now, like Stan, like eighty year old, barely with it, Stan Lee is directing a film. That movie would be incoherent. Um, let's talk about Stanley Donan instead. How's that, Jim? I like the sound of that. I wouldn't dance for you. Yeah. 
sort of in a different place carving out his own route but you want to talk about stanley don't you're going to kind of have to talk about uh arthur freed and his sort of unit at mgm which stanley donan was sort of a part of now stanley donan he started out as choreographer um now what who arthur freed yeah he started out as a dancer then he later became a choreographer oh okay yes and uh now arthur freed he was sort of the prince of mgm because he ran the most important quote-unquote unit of mgm which was sort of their musical division and that's sort of the stable of creative people that were under his sort of supervision and he he had a good sort of uh, understanding of artists so that's sort of how vincent minnelli was able to make such wonderful films he was part of that uh, uh gene kelly was part of that uh and stanley donan was part of that um so if you want to talk about Stanley Donen, you, you know, you sort of have to start off with uh, um, his sort of work as a choreographer and then later as a director of On the Town uh, for MGM. Right. Um, uh, and one other director actually who's kind of a guy is Charles Waters, who also mm-hmm. was a choreographer hmm. and also did some wonderful musicals like uh, uh, MGM, like uh, Easter Parade. Oh, yeah. And, it's cool. oh, yeah. Uh, he's part of that. He's part of that unit, too. Right. I mean, he teamed with, when he got to MGM as a choreographer first, because Charles Walters hired him. And then he eventually did choreography for some of the movies and then moved up to direct and teamed up with Gene Kelly. Their relationship went bitter towards the late 50s. They had a kind of bitter splitting up. And uh, but actually, after accessing one of the really more interesting pictures, which I may talk about. Um but right, he got together with Jenkins, they did On the Town, and they did Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And that established this team, uh, this directing team, uh, Kelly and Donnan, and they were fantastic together. They knew each other's sensibilities, they knew each other's talents. Um, Gene Kelly was always a more athletic dancer than Fred Astaire, who was more graceful. Grace, yeah, graceful, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And more sophisticated, even though later on he became actually a bit more athletic in his later uh, dance films. But Gene Kelly was always sort of like the guy, guys director. I mean, guy, guys dancer, you know, yeah. more masculine in a way. And Donnie, Donnan knew that, and they worked together well, bonded together. And of course, by the time they made Singing in the Rain, which I agree with you, may not be the best musical ever made. I think it's tremendously good. I think it's got wonderfully inventive um, musical sequences in the movie. Absolutely. Um, Wonderfully inventive musical sequences. Um, um, Good Morning is a wonderful number. Uh, Moses Opposes is fantastic. Um, And, of course, Singing in the Rain, that, that whole musical number and then you know it's his he, they were fascinating and um 
eventually what happened was that Kelly and Don had made a film, a really interesting musical called It's Always Fair Weather, which dealt with, in a way, it deals with um, um, uh, soldiers of post-traumatic stress syndrome. In a hmm. way, it okay. does. Uh, it's about three soldiers who come back um, from World War II. It was made in... Um, mid-50s, I want to say 54, 55, and trying to adjust to society and finding out that it's not easy. Now, at the time, they didn't know anything about post-traumatic tri- tri- uh, uh, stress syndrome uh, or battle shock or battle fatigue. It's just three guys trying to adjust to themselves. Right. And Donnan made it with Gene Kelly and Michael Kidd, who also is a great choreographer. This is one of the few times he was on screen and Dan Daly. And what happened was that it, Kelly was a pain to deal with <laughs> on this picture. There is a fantastic sequence that Michael Kidd does where he's cooking in the kitchen all to the beat of music. Mm. And it's on the DVD, but Kelly was so envious that he had the scene cut <laughs> out of the picture. Wow. And if you see the film... If you see, get the DVD, the, the, it's there. It's, he's not dancing to music, he's dancing to a metronome beat, but it is an amazing sequence that Kelly, that Michael Kidd does, where he mm. does this whole cooking thing to this rhythmic beat. And Kelly knew that if that thing gets in the movie, it's going to steal the picture. Was Kelly that way? Was he vindictive like that throughout his career, or was that just sort of... Well, no, he he was he was difficult to deal with. He Probably was just a control I, freak. I, I talked about on my last radio show with Eric. I talked about the film, which is out on Warner Archive, called "Invitation to the Dance," which Dean Kelly directed. It was made in 1952. It wasn't released until 1957. Hmm. It was an all dance movie that Gene Kelly spent five years tinkering and recutting and cutting out scenes and replacing them with new ones. Perfectionist and. Mm-hmm. Right, he was a perfectionist, and the studio didn't know what to do with it, because in a way, it is sort of an art film about dance. They didn't know what to do with it, and five years later, they released it. By the time MGM really wasn't in making those kind of musicals anymore, and by 57, he and Kelly split. Donnan and Kelly split. So, uh, Donnan was on his own, and I think that's when, in a way, he came to full bloom. Yeah. When he really, really came to full bloom and made some extraordinary pictures. There's Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Uh, one of the most inventive use of scope for a dance movie. Because remember when scope came out, they didn't know really how to use it. That's true. You know, we'll just put everybody in the line across the screen. So how do you <laughs> shoot a dance number in scope? Same thing with Always Fair Weather. It shot in scope. And... Um, there's a really wonderful dance uh, musical sequence with Sid Charisse in a boxing ring, which notice the framing of the movie. She's in the center, and the dancers are always moving around her, around her. It's a wonderful sequence. There, it's, um, it's, it's one of, it's, when I saw um, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, it's definitely one of the things that caught me the most. And it actually made me think back. At just because it was shortly after we had done our 2014 year-end episode, and I just sort of thought about how the idea of widescreen is sort of just taken for granted these days, and most people don't really have a sense of 
mise-en-scene about uh, composing for the widescreen. And right. when you see something like that barn-raising dance from Seven Brides to Seven Brothers, it's like, my God. Like, there's someone who is really doing inventive and interesting things. And to... <laughs> And it's insane that he did that, and then uh, and then right afterwards he shot a standard version because MGM wasn't sure right. about shooting in that ratio, so they shot the whole film side by side, um, a standard ratio and a uh, scope version. That's true. That was common because also a lot of theaters were not equipped to show scope, mm-hmm. mm. and they were racing to show scope. So you had two options. The same thing they would shoot a film in 3D and flat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, when I saw Dial M for Murder is like that. Dial M for Murder is basically the way Hitchcock would have shot it if it was flat, except there's a couple more shots in which there are lamps in the foreground. <laughs> uh, or, or in some cases, they shot a film in 3D and scope. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, yeah, that's interesting. It makes know. me think of when I used to get DVDs and they would give you the option. And right. I, I was always around people who'd be like, I don't want to see those bars. <laughs> it's, uh, if you want to, you want a little, you want a little insight into what it's like to be a burgeoning cinephile, not actually, you know, educated or um, intelligent in these ways, uh, but 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 biting at, but uh, chomping at the bit to sort of be a cinephile, to be that way in high school um, in two thousand and five, uh, I was at my girlfriend's house in two thousand and five in high school, and she had Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, full screen version, and I went uh, off. Like, <laughs> I went off, and like, like in a way that's just like she probably tells this, like the way I'm telling the story now, as far as like, ah, bah, bah, like people don't understand what ratio is and and why things need to be shot you know why you need to see things the original aspect ratio she's probably telling the story and be like oh yeah i had this one boyfriend he was this nightmare he was this total fucking dork he yelled at me because i had the full screen version of lord of the rings but like it's funny like the average person just like i want it to fill my tv i don't want black bars and if that means and if that means that the simpsons when it's uh re re re-aired on fxx or whatever and it's and they stretch out the picture all weird because it was originally <laughs> shot for four three televisions. Right. Uh, then so be it. And if that means that films that were shot, um, you know, and that like I so there it because my Blu-ray player does that. My Blu-ray player stretches out any movie to fill the TV. Um, well, you can adjust that. Well, no, no, no. You can adjust so the Blu-rays it plays fine. So like I have a Blu-rays of the universal horror films and those, they all play in the standard ratio, but DVDs mm-hmm. for some reason, DVDs is stretches out and no setting I've changed has been able to fix that. So DVDs, I always have to play on my laptop uh, and then connect that uh, to the TV. Mm-hmm. If I, if it's standard ratio, otherwise I'm but watching also, this stretched out version of, of uh, son of Frankenstein. But getting back to Donnan, um, the hip thing, if you look at those, those, movies he co-directed with Gene Kelly. My thing is this. Look at the movies Donnan made after he split up with Kelly and look at the movies that Kelly made. The movies that Kelly made are no good when he directed. Hmm. A good uh, Hello, Dolly. What is that? <laughs> it's a flat <laughs> movie. But look at what Donnan was doing. Funny Face. Look at uh, Charisse. I mean Charisse. I'm sorry. Charade. Look at Arabesque. Look at uh, Two for the Road. Look at those movies he was doing. He was incredibly inventive. 
Yeah. Incredibly inventive. And it was a visual stylist, like, without equal in yeah, it, many it, of his movies. Incredibly inventive all around. And um, even something like Funny Face that, you know, the choreography, obviously, with something like Think Pink. But he would do these sort of, like, really interesting... It, it almost just breaks out into a music video. And, like... And there's also these just incredible dance numbers that that have no lyrics, like you know Audrey Hepburn doing acrobatics in the middle of a beatnik dance club, <laughs> right? You know, just like doing really interesting things that were unexpected, especially for the time. Right. It, I call Funny Face the best MGM musical that wasn't made by MGM <laughs> because it was made for Paramount. Because. Uh, Paramount, I mean, MGM wasn't making musicals anymore, those types, and a lot of those MGM people, like Kate Thompson and Roger Edens and those people behind the scenes, they went over to Paramount. So they made the film there. It originally was supposed to be an MGM film, but by the time they got around to making it, MGM wasn't interested, so they went to Paramount. And which is why it comes off very much like a Param- like an MGM film. You look at a film like Arabesque, uh, which I love. I love arabesque. Uh, arabesque. Arabesque is a great way to describe its formal style. In, in the way mm-hmm. that ara, arabesque is an adjective that was used uh, more commonly before the film was actually made to describe something that was unusual or strange. Like, Ed, like Edgar Allan Poe would often describe things as arabesque when they were meant to be uh, very just off-putting and strange and spooky. Yeah. And that movie is like right. du- Dutch angles and crazy lighting and all sorts of really inventive uh, uses of the camera. The, the, most inventive, the most inventive thing I love in that picture is that one shot when Gregory Peck and Sophia Loren, you know, people say, people tend to like Charade better, and I said, but everybody said Sophia Loren. Sophia Loren, Audrey <laughs> uh, Hepburn. Gee, which one are you going to choose? So, but there's one thing where Gregory Peck and Sophia Loren are running down the staircase. And what Stanley, and what Stanley Donovan does, he puts the camera in the middle of a chandelier that's hanging up from the ceiling. So we're watching them running down the staircase through the crystals in the chandeliers. So we don't see it. We see fractions of them. Sections of them. Yeah. They're, they're cut up. And it, it reminds me of... Uh, Marcel Duchamp's uh, painting of men walking down the staircase, where you see these fractions and jagged edges. And that's the whole point of the movie. The movie's a puzzle. It is a puzzle. And the whole movie is shot as like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. It's a, it's, would you, would you call it a, you say, so you'd call it a cubist film? It is a cubist, yes. Yes. It's just a cubist film. You know, you know, when he shots, instead of shooting them, he shoots them through a reflection of a, a TV, of a car rearview mirror. I mean, these Dutch angles and low angle shots and tight close-ups and high angle shots. Yeah. Everything is off kilter in that picture. Everything is off kilter. Almost like uh, and, Sam Raimi. <laughs> Just like really yeah. going for broke when it comes to, to the camera work. And then when he does, when he does uh, charade which was uh, three years earlier, 1963. Um, yeah, it's Hitchcockian. He's trying to rip off the old people on the run, Hitchcock's 39th death, uh, North by Northwest. But he gives it this odd, like, scenes of brutality and violence, which are odd. You know, a man thrown off a train in the first scene in the movie. 
um, one character played by Ned Glass, we see him go up an elevator, we hear a scream, he comes down, his throat has been cut. Um, and the, the one thing I love is when George Kennedy, the guy with the hook, <laughs> yeah. is, fight, is finding um, Cary Grant, and he flies off the roof, and we just see his hook sliding down the uh, sliding down the roof, and we see the sparks yeah, coming out. Yeah, that's awesome. And he flies into darkness, and we just see still see sparks. Ooh. It's uh, it's and, it's a very uh, it's its sense of humor is very irreverent. I, I find those it, I find it's those violence. It's, it's a ghoulish film. It yeah, it starts. I, I, w- I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far. I feel like the violence is always undercut immediately because most deaths that happen in charade are immediately followed by the uh, chief inspector <laughs> <laughs> staring at a corpse dressed in pajamas in their bed. Uh, I I think it's a I think it's an irreverent sense of humor. I don't I don't it doesn't the violence doesn't strike me as as like over the top in any way for me. Well, yeah, it is because or the scene where we see a guy in a bathtub. Yeah, exactly. Know, uh, been drowned, right? Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's a little jarring. It's a little jarring at first. And actually, one thing you ought to you ought to read is I I collect I have three copies of it. I collect the New York Times uh, uh the New York Times. It would would collect all the movie reviews they ever did, they ever published, and print them out in these volumes. Okay. And I have them. I, I have from 1958 to like 1980, and they're huge volumes. They're like 700 pages a piece. It is every review. I mean, printed like it was printed in the newspaper. Sure. And the, the reviewer at at the time in the 1960s and 50s was a guy by the name of Bossy Crowther, and Bossy Crowther hated everything. <laughs> and when he reviewed, when he reviewed Charade, read the review because it sounds like he's describing a Friday the Thirteenth movie. <laughs> he is so put off by the violence, the way he describes it, gore and brutality, and this film is despic- I mean, he really despised like the movie. It's not a movie or anything. I I, uh, I I always felt like that. Like Charade has the same sort of uh, irreverent sense of humor that like Singing in the Rain does. Where Singing in the Rain, it constantly undercuts itself with some joke that is not taking itself seriously. Like uh, the same way that some brutal for the time sort of murder uh, sequence would happen in Charade and it's immediately followed by the joke of the inspector being like – another another man in his bed. It's not like Singing in the Rain. The whole film – the whole in charade, the whole film tells you, do not take anything here seriously. Yeah. This is a mm-hmm. movie, folks. But and Arabesque takes it even a step further, because Arabesque, the plot is so stupid and so inconsequential. Wait a minute. So he's hired to translate this hieroglyphic, but it's not really about that. It's about something else. But then it's really also about something else. And then you say, well, couldn't they have told him that in the very beginning instead of going through all the other stuff? And it, the plot is ridiculous. And the movie, it's all a big MacGuffin. That's what I was. It's that's how I felt when I was watching it. It's a huge big MacGuffin. It has nothing to do with anything until the very end. Nothing to do with anything at all. And the movie knows that, and it plays with that. And interestingly, in Arabesque, unlike Charade, in Arabesque, the woman... Uh, Sophia Loren, she's the active character. She's the one. Uh, she's always one step ahead of the game. Gregory Peck yeah. is just following her around. He doesn't know really what's going on. I will say that um, 
It's Audrey, also usually almost always a guy who's doing that. Audrey Hepburn in a charade um, gets a little shrill. She plays the damsel in distress a little too directly, I guess. I don't know. I, 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 should, say, I should say at this point, uh, I, lo- I lost my job two weeks ago. Um, and so because you, pre- you admitted to not liking Audrey Hepburn. No, nah, that was what happened. Um, no, I lost my job two weeks ago. I've been pretty depressed. So Arabesque was a film that I put on, and then 15 minutes in, uh, we had to make dinner, and I ended up doing something. I did not finish Arabesque. So I've seen 15 minutes of Arabesque. Um, so I can't speak to that film. Just, just so no one thinks I'm talking about Arabesque uh, and its crazy style um, and having not seen the film entirety. But um, – yeah, I should say I should say I don't like Audrey Hepburn as an actress in general. <laughs> and uh, well, you I, know what? What you're saying, what you're saying about Sophia Loren makes me want to see it more. Uh, finish right. Eric Lesmore. This is one of the few movies actually I can tolerate Audrey Hepburn. I'm sorry. Go on. Oh yeah. Uh, I find her too a bit too like you know uh, too delicate. You know that voice always sets me on edge. You know, it's just, uh, you know, she, ugh. But I find her, I, I do like her in charades. I mean, in a way, it's like the right part for her. You know? And she's good in uh, um, Two for the Road, like, too. Like, can, can we compare her with Sophia Loren, that's something else. That's, it's like apples and oranges, you know, you like, forget it. Um, and, and also, still continue with Stanley Donnan. I mean, this whole period, when he did Arabesque, he was living in England. And you look at the films he was making, and he did Arabesque, and then he did... Indiscreet? Uh, two in a row. He did Bedazzled. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dudley Cook of Dudley Cook, sorry, Dudley Moore and Peter Cook, and their version of Faust, and which is really tell me, tell me, Monty, Monty Python wasn't inspired by that movie, you know? And then uh, they did Two for the Road, which is maybe his more mature, most mature film about once again Audrey Hepburn, who's actually once again actually quite good in this film. And, oh yeah, I agree. And 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 um, Albert Finney, and it traces the marriage of a couple from the time they met to uh, a point when they have years later when they have to decide: should we keep this marriage? Should we keep going, or should we just break up? But it's done in a nonlinear, fractured style, which he got from the French filmmakers. He was obviously he was being inspired by. Truffaut and other filmmakers, Godard and other filmmakers, and he applied that to this movie. And it's a movie as such, it has humor in it, but it has such a maturity to it, and a sort of wisdom, and somebody who's lived his life. Donna was married, by the way, who's still alive. Donna is in the early 90s. Um, uh, Sergio, and, is, um, is Patrick still there? I, I am still here. Okay, yeah. I was just I just okay. felt like there was a delay or something for a minute. Uh, no. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, I got to make a note. But uh, Donnan has been married five times. So I guess he knows a lot about marriage and, and divorces, you know, <laughs> and, and relationships. So um, uh, it's it's a marvelous film. It's a film when I saw as a kid on TV. I didn't get it. Of course, because I was a kid. I didn't get it. But, yeah. you know, as you get older, get beaten up by life, and you look at certain films, <laughs> you go like, okay, I know what it's all about. Two for the Road is okay, incredibly... Well crafted. Um, it's it's interesting, like especially after um, you know films like Blue Valentine and Five Hundred Days of Summer, like just that editing of going back and forth, 
Um, I really, I really love that style. I, your your favorite movie by uh, Nicholas Rogue? Bad timing. Mm, yeah, not a fan of that. But no, I just yeah. I, I I I appreciate Two for the Road for obvi- its obvious influence and its insights into you know marriage and relationships. Um, but I mean, I I think part of me still you know gets that impression of. Um, you know, something really intense, either through dialogue or action, cut through levity. And I like that. I like that approach quite a bit. I just, um, sometimes I think, especially after going through Cassavetes, maybe I wanted to just go full-blown intense. <laughs> but I don't, I don't mind it. I, th- I think Two for the Road is quite, is, is a really great film. And especially for it its editing I think influence. it's a really great film. And I love that final scene. Wonderful yeah. final scene. Oh yeah, yeah. And we won't give it away here, but that's a we talk about. We talk about great endings. That's a great ending. It's a wonderful final scene in the movie. And the thing about it is that also I kind of miss. Well, because I don't know, maybe because I get older, I miss movies about relationships between older adults. Mm. You know, relationship movies. Not you know, I see movies. It's between younger people in their twenties, and I go, eh, I don't care. <laughs> I want to see people in their forties, in their fifties. I want to see people who have lived a life. You know, who have lived a life and, you know, and they take their life experiences into a relationship with somebody. You can't do that when you're 20 years old. You know, true. one of the great things, Peter Bogdanovich said this once, and it's really true. He said, when you think about the great directors of the past, they all did something before they became directors. Fritz Lang was an architect. Otto Preminger had been a lawyer. Um, uh, Howard Hawks flew airplanes, built airplanes and was a race car driver. Uh, Victor Fleming, who directed most of uh, Going to Win, he had been a car mechanic. Uh, while Walsh, had, he had been a cowboy, a wrangler, a stuntman. All these guys had lives before they got into the movies. So they had this life experience, which they brought into the movies, which you see in a relationship with the characters on screen. John Huston. John Huston had been a boxer. He had been in the Mexican Army. He had done all kinds of things um, before he started writing movies. Filmmakers today, they go to film school to make movies. Okay, but what's your life experience? <laughs> or they just, they grew up in the video store, and that was their yeah. film school. Okay, that's what, you know movies, okay, you know movies, you know past movies, but have you been, as my friend, as a friend of mine likes to say, have you been beaten up by life? You know? Like I said, uh, Stanley Donnan... Uh, grew up in a Jewish family in a southern home in the South. That couldn't have been easy. Um, became a Broadway dancer, you know, and I'm sure he spent many years struggling to survive in New York City trying to, you know, to eat uh, as a dancer and then became a choreographer. And then, you know, so he had had life experience. And like I said before, he'd been married five times. The guy had life experience. <laughs> Clearly. And that, that, right. that I, I'm assuming that must inform two for the road a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. That's the point I'm making. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That I, no, I'm, movie I, like that. I, 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 I can appreciate that sentiment. Um, right. But yeah, in and terms of know, um, like, musicals and stuff, like I probably have said this on the on the Minnelli episode, but I'm I'm not the biggest musical fan, and yet. Mm-hmm. Um, Something like Singing in the Rain or Meet Me in St. Louis, Meet Me in St. Louis, they both <laughs> occupy a space in my mind that just feels untouched by most films. They're just, what, 
they're sublime, they're joyful. Sure. I mean, it's hard not to get they're infectious. It's it's hard not to be taken in by those films. Very, very different hit, films hit, though. Oh, of course. I, I know. I realize yeah, but, that. No, but you you hit you hit on something. Particularly those MGM musicals of the Freed unit. You know, I even the minor ones like The Bell of New York, uh, Fred Astaire. I mean when you every time when those movies are finished, you feel satisfied. Yeah. My God, I said, you know, like I saw a couple of years ago, I saw the bandwagon at the Cisco Film Center. And the audience burst into applause at the end of the movie. Because you felt, you know, this was a movie. This was, you saw some of the greatest talent at the time, mm-hmm. at the top of their game. And like a friend of mine, like years ago, I had a conversation with a friend of mine. I said, gee, why can't he make movies like, you know, Singing in the Rain or just movies anymore? And my friend said, simple. One word, talent. You don't have that kind of talent anymore. Or at the time, what the studios would do, they would go out and find that talent. You know, they would go out and activate it. Now you got people who are, you know, Martin, you know, what goes for pop music today or hip hop or anything. You know, everybody will agree who into it. These people don't have any talent. There, it's it's, it's what's ever marketable. And, it, and it's even like you can just go to. Who are the greatest people on Broadway right now? And what do they sound like when they sing? And what do they look like when they dance? And who are the greatest mm-hmm. people on Broadway in the 40s? And what did they look like when they dance? And what do they sound like when they sing? There is a sort of stripping out of personality. When Gene Kelly sings, he's not the great singer. He's the great dancer. But when Gene Kelly sings, right. he sounds like Gene Kelly. When Judy Garland sings, she sounds like Judy Garland. When mm-hmm. any of these other Broadway people they, these days sing – they sound like American Idol. They just sound like they've been vocal trained within an inch of their life, and there's no personality coming through the voice. You don't yeah, have there's that. There's no Bernadette, soul there. There's no Bernadette Peters coming out. There's no, uh, you know, that that sort of um, great personality coming through the voice that lends itself so well to musicals. Which is why you can like. I I mean, as a big a fan of musicals as I am, I'm not going to rush out and see Into the Woods because these actors, even if they are people who know how to sing they're probably not people who sing with a tremendous amount of personality and thus their singing is probably not going to dovetail into the narrative as well as it would have if it was the 50s and they had had that training or I that uh couldn't agree yeah, more and smart, i don't get excited yeah, about smart, contemporary smart, musicals smart move. don't don't watch the movie smart move yeah. don't watch it I did. yeah I sure do it it's funny that um, I saw no, Singing you, in the Rain for the first time around this around the time that Moulin Rouge came out. And like oh every, everybody was singing the praises of Moulin Rouge and I was just like, No, that's not the real deal at all. I mean it's well, a Moulin, it's, Moulin Rouge has its own it has its own charms. I, I'm not gonna I don't wanna throw Moulin Rouge under the bus just because it's not one of the greatest films ever made. Oh, I, know. I know, but it's I it, it has an energy, it has its charms. I like the the sort of mashup um approach that they do with the medleys and stuff. That's that stuff is fine. I just I don't get that sense of awe and wonder that you know it, it, well, singing well, in the rain it, raises the it, bar. <laughs> well, well, a lot a lot of the reason it has to do with the fact. God, I couldn't bear Moulin Rouge. Every five seconds, a new shot. And one of the reasons <laughs> they do that is because they can't sing and dance. True. Nicole Kidman cannot dance. So how do you get around that? You cut her up into pieces in the editing, right? And when, when you look at a Stanley Donnan film or any of those movies of the 1950s and the MGM, you see the whole body. Yeah. Why? Because they can actually in dance. In the full frame. So you want to see it, 
right? Uh, same thing with cheating with fight scenes, all this cross-cutting, real fast cutting, right, because you can't fight. Just why I like John Wick. Oh, finally I can see a fight, you know? Or, you know, um, God, the immortal Bruce Lee. I mean, that guy can fight. Let's see the body. Let's see the body in motion, mm-hmm. right? Don't cross-cut because don't cheat because the guy can't throw a punch, right? Um, and you look at cat personality, you talked about... Um, uh, the the uh, taking the pill have one two three could a could a could a water mass out be a movie star today? No. Mm-mm. No, we need, mean, we need another Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. Water <laughs> Matthau was unique. I mean, he was one of the most unlikeliest movie stars you've ever seen. But when he was on the screen, he commanded the screen because of his force of his personality, with that hound dog face of his. You know. You know, he was he was incredible on the screen. You know, in drama or comedy, he could do both. Yeah, Very, much, like, have, much like Jack Lemmon, too, at the time. Well, I mean, he, he, you know, probably, like, he probably came into, I mean, Save the Tiger, something like that was just my Jack moment. Lemmon, right. Yeah. Right, right. You know, Jack Lemmon, sure, he could be overacting. You could see him act. But Jack Lemmon still had a, a electricity on the screen. You know, mm-hmm. when he was on full cylinders, he could be very funny. Or yeah. he could be very moving. You know, he could be very dramatic. You know, I was talking to someone, I was talking about Birdman. And I called, I said, boy, yeah, Eddie Adams, Eddie Adams. You know, Eddie, and my friend said, uh, you mean Emma Stone? And I said, yeah, right, I can't tell one from the other. <laughs> you know, I can't tell. I can't tell. Yeah, right. No, we're, we're, not have another, we're not going to have another. We're not going to have another Cary Grant anytime, and that's and that's the thing too. I like. I wasn't too crazy about indiscreet, and it's probably just a case of a of a play adaptation and not really doing a whole lot, or at least not engaging to me in terms of its storyline and just like, oh, you know, here comes Cary Grant to charm uh, Ingrid Bergman, and you know, it turns mm. out like this whole plot is built on whether or not he's really married or not. And I don't know. It it just ran out of steam. It felt long. Yeah, but that, it, that's not one of his best, right? That, no. That's, that's, it, it's not much of a picture. I know. No, in, it's, in it's kind of innocuous. In but at the same time, right. Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman, It's <laughs> you could just watch them even if the plot is meh. You know, it, it, at least that'll carry you through the experience just because they're so magnetic and, you know, you just want to oh, watch just, them just, together. Just look at Cary Grant during that dance sequence when they're at the ball and he just dances around. <laughs> exactly. You know, this dance sequence, he's hysterical, you know? Right. And he's, I mean, Cary Grant is Cary, and, he, you know, he created that character. He was a cockney kid, mm-hmm. you know? And he created, what's his real name, Archibald Leach, and he created this character called Cary Grant with the voice and the smooth style and everything. I mean, he glides on the screen. Yeah. You know, or you look at Burt Lancaster, and if you listen to uh, John Frankenheimer's commentary on the train, and it's a shot of Burt Lancaster walking across the, tra- the, the train yard, and, and he, he was, a, he was a acrobat, so he moves like an athlete with this grace. And Frankenheimer looks at that scene, what is coming in that scene, he says, nobody moved on the screen like Burt Lancaster. He's right. Yeah, I still need to see Even, uh, even great Force. movie stars had their own walk. John Wayne had his own walk. Betty Davis had his own walk, had her own walk. K- 
Cary Grant had his own way of moving. Burt Lancaster had his own way of moving. Um, on my last show uh, with Eric, uh, we, you know, we were talking about Spencer Tracy. And for a while, I was on a big Spencer Tracy kick. I was watching everything Spencer Tracy I could get my hands on. And you look at a guy, you go like, my God, what an actor. Yeah. And he looked like he wasn't doing anything. Now, very you know, natural. He looked like he was so effortless. He right. wasn't doing anything. And he was a master actor. When you see him. Uh, you know, I'm if you're just that, joining I'm us. Saying, I'm not saying that there are not bad actors today. I'm not saying that. What happened, but, Patrick? <laughs> Right. If, you, if you're just joining us, this is the Old Man Podcast in which uh, right. we talk about the, right. many, the many ways in which <laughs> modern films are inferior to classic films. Right. And why can't hey, why can't that Ryan Gosling be like that Spencer Tracy? No, I mean, I'm saying right. that why because I, I, I'm saying that because I agree with you, Sergio. But it's also no, but you eh, know what? whiplash you know wouldn't exist in the 50s. You know, like no, there's, no, it, there's no, some good things. What? Upstream you know color. J.K. Simmons, Simmons <laughs> would have been a, a huge star in the 1950s. J.K. Simmons, that. that is true. He would if have I been invent a, a time travel machine, I know who I'm taking with me. Yeah, um, J.K. Simmons. I mean, he would have he would have been he would have been signed up by Warner Brothers, and they would have had him in all kinds of stuff. It would have been great. You know. uh, I do. If, as long as we're talking about the difference between eras and uh, nostalgia, I do want to talk about singing in the rain because I watched that last night um, and uh -huh. I sort of I walked away with it this time with a different feeling than I did the last several times I had seen it um, which is that I think singing in the rain is this it's about sort of the end of an era and the start of a new one um, mm -hmm. and in the end everything right. turns out all right like even though they switch yeah. over to talkies Gene Kelly is such a great actor he switches over to talkies it's fine but I think it's sort of the last great – I don't want to say last great MGM musical because Seven Brides, Seven Brothers came out. But like no, no. it's sort of the death throes for what was traditionally the film musical. It's the last great traditional film musical in that it is the most frivolous movie ever. It is so joyously frivolous. Musical numbers will just spawn at – like what's wrong? Well, I haven't seen this girl. OK. Well, here is a seven-minute number called Make Them Laugh and it's fantastic. Like – <laughs> it's like oh. what and it's like and it's like well i guess there's talkies so that means there's diction coaches what does that mean well that means here's a crazy number called moses supposes which is just nonsense like it is so uh. joyously frivolous and not driven by character it's not driven by story it's just look let's put something on screen that makes the audience happy and dazzles them and let's not worry about whether or not the love story between Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds is particularly moving. Like, you know, you, you think of like, oh, well, it's the 50s. Things weren't that uh, sophisticated. But you see movies like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Brief Encounter. Meet me in St. Louis, even Easter <laughs> Easter Parade. I mean, yeah. even Bandwagon. The the relationships between the characters are actually more complex and interesting and sophisticated than uh, singing in the rain. Singing in the rain is just this sort of tribute to this idea of frivolous entertainment, which is you know it was an important thing. It wasn't just like oh, wasn't it fun when we didn't have to think? Like it was an important thing during the Great Depression that you could walk into a movie theater and see Footlight Parade or Forty Second Street and just be dazzled by like the most mind blowing imagery you've ever seen in your mind and just be just tickled pink by this sort of backstage musical kind of story. 
and then walk out and be like, oh, that was that was great. So anyway, back to the Great Depression. Like, but, like but, the, you know, the, but you know, the thing about it is that when don't forget when when Singing in the Rain came out, sound still wasn't all that old. I mean, it had there were talking movies for maybe twenty years. It was still relatively new, relatively new. So when Singing in the Rain came out, a lot of people who saw the film still remember the silent movies. Sure, and sure. The that, but I mean, that—that's where the nostalgia comes in, right? Yeah, and and of course it's based on true because a lot of those stars back then, silent movie stars, when song came out, they had horrible voices, or a lot of times they didn't speak English. Yeah, um, and or they had Bronx accents, or they had something that was wrong, and they said their career was over. Actually, it was kind of a sad thing because a lot of these people were big stars. All of a sudden, their careers were over. Sure. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I I think Singing in the Rain, in every way it operates, is sort of telling – I mean, and you have to understand, like, the movie musical at this point, Rodgers and Hammerstein and Gilbert and Sullivan, they have already been – sort of running Broadway and the idea of musicals in which the numbers weren't uh, sort of interchangeable, but the musicals were, the numbers were very important telling the story. Like that was already a solid idea on Broadway for a while. Um, right. You know, with, with Oklahoma and South Pacific and stuff all before the singing in the rain film came out. And I think, and if you look at MGM, I mean like seven brides for seven brothers, the difference between that singing in the rain is massive. Like the numbers in that film are very much telling the story and the, and those kind of follow that tradition. And that was ultimately, you know, there was still some wonderful, wonderful films to come out in that tradition, like sound of music or my fair lady and stuff. But, but like ultimately that was what led to sort of the end of the movie music. I mean, obviously among other um, factors, like that was the end of the movie musical and they didn't know it at the time when they made singing in the rain, but singing in the rain ends up being very poignant because it's this tribute to this like era of filmmaking that um, was on its way out. Um, and it's sort of the last great frivolous, like you watch gold diggers of 1933 None of the like it's the dopey it's the dopiest sort of madcap comedy plot and it's fun and you know it has good comedians in it and it's funny to watch but you don't care about any of the characters you're just waiting uh it's just sort of like nice entertainment in between the big Busby Berkeley musicals and Singing in the Rain I mean it's a hilarious movie that's honestly like that is the saving grace of Singing in the Rain is that irreverent humor has made it um stand the test of time because its sense of humor is way more modern um, than many films of the era, but like it's timeless. And, but they'll just take any like to me the ultimate to me where the themes of Stinging in the Rain most come into play is the idea of Moses supposes because Moses supposes is addiction coach is coming in. Here comes all the things that Debbie Reynolds was talking about earlier in the film. Here comes Ibsen and Shakespeare. And this is where films can really be important. And it's not just that big goofy acting that you see Gene Kelly doing earlier as a, as a cowboy Western where he's diving over a bar and smashing into glass. Like it's actually, Ooh, this is now a medium where we can tell important stories. And so that's the idea of that diction scene is like, you need to be able to enunciate. You need to be able to, to get forth the words of the bard. And basically, uh, uh, it, it just devolves into madness. And it's like, actually, you know what? You know what actually makes film great? Actually is movement. And let, let's, let us prove it. 
because this because this number is going to start off as us singing nonsense, and then it's going to turn into us not singing at all, but doing the most wonderful dance moves, and you'll be dazzled, and we won't have said a single word about the human condition, and it's sort of this great big ode to frivolous entertainment, and it's like as much as you know, and luckily as film viewers, you can appreciate both. You can say John Cassavetes was onto something, and you can say <laughs> that Gene Kelly was onto something. Um, but like that, I feel like that's kind of the themes of the film. Like that's its main thematic thrust is that there is something to turning off your brain and seeing something wonderful. Um, and I think Singing in the Rain is about that. I'm a huge fan of when the dialogue transforms into song. <laughs> Yeah. Like Moses supposes. But I think Gene Kelly sort of had a hand in, I think originally was going to be more of a traditional sort of catalog musical. And then he, mm-hmm. you know, decided to make it more integrated with songs and story kind of woven together, mixing the comedy with dance. And, uh, you know, he was responsible for sort of altering how that film well, en- I mean, ended up. Uh, when I say it's frivolous, there's not an actual really strong conflict in the entire film until no. 12 before it's over. 12 minutes before it's over, then uh, I forget the actress's name. Uh, but yeah. she shows up. What, and, Debbie Reynolds? No, 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 the other girl. The, the one with the crazy voice. <laughs> That's Hagen, how I remember Gene her. Gene Hagen. Yeah, yeah Gene, Gene Hagen. Hagen. Mm-hmm. That's when Gene Hagen shows up and says – and. And says, okay, it has to be this way, and Debbie Reynolds won't get credited, and Debbie Reynolds won't get a career, and the so-and-so. But, like, that's 12 minutes before the movie ends. Before that, it's just – and even that even that problem solve it, solves itself. All they do for that, for that part is just let Gene Hagen go out and talk with her own voice. Like, it is so breezy and so effortless, and it has just the most minimal backbone, sort of narrative backbone to it. Gene Kelly may have like tried to make it more of a storytelling, but I don't think it necessarily does that. I don't think that's the case for this film. And it's, I mean, it's part of and what makes it such, I so th- great. I think at the time, um, I don't think they realized what they were making. I think, well, for a lot of those movies, I think it was just another studio picture. Yeah. And uh, another studio musical. And... For the Freed Unit, and I don't think they had any idea how this thing was going to explode like that. I think I think the same could be said for Vanelli's The Bandwagon. I think they didn't know what they had when well, they I th- actually, made it. They I, just thought it was th- going to be another musical. I think Sound of Music wasn't didn't explode until like a couple decades later when it was sort of reevaluated by critics. Hmm. I think at the time it Which was one? considered just uh, The Bandwagon. Singing, no, Singing in the Rain. I think was sort of considered oh, a minor in the rain. Sorry, time. Sorry, sorry. And then it wasn't until later that it was considered one of the greatest films ever. Yeah, kind of like John Carpenter's The Thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's the exact same. <laughs> no, that's not true. No, I realized The Thing was brilliant the first time I saw it. Yay! <laughs> I thought, I'd like to talk a little bit, too, about Funny Face, because it's a, it's a weird movie, just because like I was thinking it was going to sort of be kind of a social commentary. <laughs> And it really just ultimately becomes frivolous, and exactly, exactly. It's, it's a, not, and of course, there, there is the the age difference. You know, you got yeah, it's a little creepy. Grandpa Fred and Stare, and and, and you yeah, know, twenty something Hepburn who could yeah. play his granddaughter in the movie. But, yeah, but I thought it was going to um, be a little. You know, it's it sort of plays like this mishmash between Pygmalion and 
<laughs> Devil Wears Prada, where it makes fun of the fashion industry <laughs> a little bit. It starts off that way and, you know, has this interesting kind of commentary on philosophers and, you know, satirizes how ridiculous they can be, how ridiculous the fashion industry can be. But, you know, it, it has it has no um, desire to really be anything profound because I like part of me is so, um, you know, enmeshed in um, arcs and psychology to where I'm like, oh, come on, she's going to break free. She's not going to do the fashion thing and she's not going to be a ful- philosopher. Um, but she winds up doing the fashion thing in the end, and I was like, "Oh, yeah." Because I, I think that's why I call it the best MGM musical that was made by MGM. It's a very frivolous movie, and it's it's the last gasp of that sort of movie. And I think that's <laughs> what they intended to make. I mean, because it was sure. like all these ex MGM people who are now Paramount, and they said, "Let's." And it was originally an MGM project, and I go, and they think they said, "Let's," because taste had changed. The kind of musicals that they were making a couple of years earlier really weren't that popular anymore. The people, audiences had become more perhaps sophisticated or felt, felt they were more sophisticated. So this was sort of like a last attempt to try to capture at least that sort of nonsense, frivolous, MGM type of musical. With some more day, modern day, additions to it, mm-hmm. uh, well, modern day for 1956-57, right. but still is a very much a throwback to those old-fashioned musicals. Yeah, I can see that. Well, that was what happened with uh, um, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, was it? most of the money that would have went to that went to Brigadoon at the time, because MGM thought that was going to be the big, sorry, well, it was a big Broadway hit, and uh, so it's going to be the big movie, and it ended up being uh, too uh, inaccessible a premise for 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 audiences, whereas Seven Brides for Seven Brothers ended up being the big hit. Yeah, uh, right. And also, what hurts Brigadoon and Manelli has said it too. He wanted to shoot it in location in England or Scotland, and he said, "No, you can't. You got to shoot it in the studio." Now, in a way, that kind of helps the film because it gives it an unreal, unworldly look. But at the same time, it's very studio bound. Hmm. You know, uh, but right. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is one of those things where I suspect what happened, and this happened, is that since the studio really didn't care about it, I think Donnan said, "Let's go for broke here." You know, uh, let's do things we haven't done before. Let's you really use the framing, the scope. Let's really go to town on this thing because if you compare both movies, uh, Seven Brides is much more dynamic. And much more inventive a movie than Brigadoon, which is pretty stolid. Yeah, and it's it's not it's not one of Manelli's best pictures. No, I'm kind of curious about movie movie. Did you ever see that? <laughs> Just yeah, it's been a long time. I was going to bring up Blame It on Rio. Oh, I'm curious but, about no, that too. <laughs> Michael Caine as the friendly pedophile, the 16 year old kid. I don't know about this, but um, oh my. Uh, now, yeah, uh, and also one film I probably should not mention. Actually, I should tell you, back in the late 70s, I actually met Stanley Donnan. I actually met Stanley Donnan in Los Angeles. And um, I was brave enough to ask him about Lucky Lady. Huh. And what happened on that? Uh, 
it, it was a disastrous picture, and it was infamous because he shot several endings. He didn't know how to end this picture. <laughs> and he was very honest. He told me what happened. He shot three different endings, and none of them worked. And they finally wound up with an ending which they kind of cobbled together from previous footage because they could not figure out. Because the original ending ended tragically. The, the two main characters are killed, and it tested poorly. And okay. they had, and the movie was, was scheduled to come out in December, and they had like a month to get something done. So in a month, they shot two different endings, and that, those didn't work, and they wound up with something. Nobody was happy about it. No, he was happy about it. Uh, movie, movie, mm, you know, it's. It I seems like he's a, trying to do. Seems like a gimmick right. more than anything. It was. It was a gimmick to try to do two old-fashioned movies, but the spirit wasn't there. The times had changed. You don't have the kind of stars who can pull off something like that, and the scripts weren't there. I mean, the storylines they just weren't there. It was a nice idea. Uh, but it wasn't um, anybody could tell you this was this was not going to work. It wasn't going to appeal to anybody, you know, and it just wasn't going to work at all. Blame it on Rio, which was Dan Stunning's last movie, uh, with Michael Caine chasing after a nubile sixteen-year-old in in Rio. Uh, the less said about that, the better. All right. <laughs> all right. Yeah. The less I'm, said about that, the better. I'm not excited to see that anytime soon. No, you know, I, no. I, I, I did with the audience. I did Google his um, name, and it, it came up with, um, I think it was in 2013, they were saying he's going to come out of retirement, apparently, and direct something. But, yeah, right. Are you kidding me? <laughs> 90 years old? I didn't hear old? that. Yeah. No, there yeah. was an article about that. How old is he now? That. He's got to be in his 90s. He is. I think he's exactly 90 right now. 90. Well, mm. well look, you know, it gets... It's something with Eastwood, Elaine May. It's Clint Eastwood. <laughs> That's true. Still do stuff, and there's only a few years difference between them. Why not, Donna? I don't know. Hey, you never know. Yeah, <laughs> you never well, know. All right, and do we want to touch on anything else real quick here before we give our top three? Uh, no, but Stanley, everybody, I, I hopefully they will check them out. Uh, check out his movies. I know. Seeing, I'm sorry. Seeing the rain is on Blu-ray, isn't it? It should be. I hope so. Have to be. I think so. Yeah. Uh, um, I know uh, Two for the Road is coming out on Blu-ray in the UK, or has just come out, which means that soon it'll be coming out in the Blu-ray here in the United States. That really needs a Blu-ray release. It'll look gorgeous in Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. It's a beautifully shot movie. Yeah. Um, and probably Twilight Time, most likely, will probably because re- they're releasing all those older Fox titles. Speak- speaking of... You. Speaking of, uh, if you've listened to this podcast and you go, oh, Charade, that sounds good. I should check that out. Don't watch the one that's on Netflix. Uh, apparently, there's all sorts of like public domain rights issues, and the version they have there is no, like no, it's a been rip of a... Twice on Blu-ray. Yeah, it, but no, the version on Universal Netflix... Picked... The version on Netflix is uh, ripped from a VHS. Oh, that's yeah, lame. Uh, it is, it is, there are two versions. There is Criterion Blu-ray, and then also Universal has released it on Blu-ray with no extras, but they have also released it on Blu-ray, too. It's, it's, I'm sure it's a lot cheaper than the Criterion. Of course it is. But you can get either one on Blu-ray. It, it's a, it's, once again, it's also a really beautifully shot movie, uh, particularly yeah. the, the, some wonderful location work in Paris. Wonderful loca- I'm still waiting for a Blu-ray of Arabesque. Uh, 
It is on DVD, but it was part of a Gregory Peck package. But I do have that one DVD of Arabesque. But um, uh, that's something else. Well, Universal's not good with their older titles, so God oh. knows if ever that's going to be released on Blu-ray. I don't know. But, yeah, I think Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is also on Blu-ray. Uh, yeah. I believe so. Yeah. Uh, please do not see Pen and Scan. Please do not see that picture. That was, that was the... I remember the TCM sort of in-between movies, the little special feature they had where Martin Scorsese was explaining the difference between widescreen and pan and scan. Basically, it was like Martin Scorsese tells cable audiences why when they watch movies on this network, they have the black bars on top and the bottom. And uh, the big example he gave was Seven Brides for Seven Brothers barn raising dance scene. Right. Oh, and, and I should say that I think that's probably gone now. I think people are used to seeing black bars on the screen. Yes, um, I would agree. I, I think, I think, I think it's, as TVs have gotten bigger and wider, I think people are used to that now. I, um, I, just, I think I, people just want it to fill the screen no matter what. That, no, that was true. That was the point. People had bought these big TVs and they wanted to be filled up, and they were concerned about the aesthetic qualities or advantages of seeing a film in its original aspect ratio. Um, and also, one thing you have to keep in mind is, and actually, I think very soon I'm going to be giving um, a friend of mine, I'm going to be doing a lecture on movie going in the 1970s. And one of the things oh, I wow. want to talk about is. It, you know, we had these big movie theaters with big screens. Now with multiplex, the screens are actually much smaller. Even if you see something on scope, you know, the screen you're looking at is really maybe half the size, two-thirds the size of this house, big movie screens. So it's one thing to see a movie in scope like at River East. Is another thing to see a movie in scope like at the Chicago Theater. True. Or the old Esquire Theater. When you had these huge oh, Esquire. Screens. Miss that. Miss the Esquire. Right. <laughs> you know, I first saw Blade Runner at the Esquire. Oh. Right? <laughs> I first saw I first saw Scarface at the Esquire. You know. Man, those big screens. I'm telling you, and it's one thing, boy, to see Blade Runner on a screen that size, or to see Scarface on a screen that size, particularly that final shootout. Baby, you don't know film. You don't know film going. <laughs> well, I hope I get to see Singing in the Rain on the big screen. That's for sure. I have. It's yeah. it's it's, uh, it's it's fun. Thank God for the music box. Exactly. But, um, uh, yeah, check all these films out, you know? And I mean, as I always tell people, don't just see stuff that comes out now. See the stuff that come, that's been made 20, 30, 50, 60 years ago. Watch silent movies. See all those movies, right? Because then it informs you of the movies you're seeing now. And you can see the connection between the movies you see now and the movies then. And you can see where people are stealing stuff. There's a weird... I feel, I feel like for certain, for the... Sort of uh, cinephiles who are growing up now, who are maybe like just going into film school now or something. There's a weird narrative that's taken place where it's like, well, Hollywood was all crap, and then New Hollywood came in the '70s, and that sort of fixed it. And there's about twenty, or th- 
And there's about 20 or 30 movies that came out before the 70s where the directors got to be real auteurs, but the rest of them are uh, were just audience-pleasing pablum. And the truth is... Not true. At all. That's yeah, not true at all. And it's... And even if, like, you watch a movie from the 40s and you're like, I liked it, but I felt a little distant from it, the solution to that is to watch more movies from the 40s. I, it's, it's this effect I've talked about a lot, but it's this idea of once you've seen enough films from the 30s and you just sort of understand what it's like to be a film from the 30s, then when you see a film from the 30s, you just automatically snap into the mindset of – watching a film from the 30s and you can sort of appreciate it for what it is from the era and you don't have to sort of feel distant from it. You can actually get a lot of feeling from it and a lot of emotion. You can see Brief Encounter and it can move you just as much as Boyhood or any other film that came out in 2014. Amen. Uh, or, more, or more so in the case of Brief Encounter. But like, you know, watch more movies. I, it was one of those things. Like the first time I saw a creature from the Black Lagoon, I'm like, that looks ridiculous. That's a dumb costume. And then you see, and then you see more movies from the 40s and 50s, and you sort of understand what audiences were used to when they saw a Creature from the Black Lagoon. And you watch it again, you're like, oh man, that's a great, that's a great costume. It's it's wonderful design. Well, you and, know, I just recently saw it on 3D. They had a screen. Did they showing it in 3D at the uh, Cisco Film Center? Sure, sure. I and saw it a couple years ago. In 3D, yeah. I went to it and, and it looks fantastic on 3D. It's great. In, in 3D, it's all about the uh, the underwater scenes and the bubbles. The bubbles exactly. sort of going up in exactly. the foreground. Yeah. And I and was watching this, and I haven't seen this film in a long time, long time. And I think I saw it in 3D last time, but it was like that green blue thing, and it looked crappy. And oh, sure, sure, yeah. See it. Yeah, and and to see it in three D and to see and you can I can see how the audience were nuts over this picture. And always those music cues every time they show up yeah. you know, and it's and <laughs> it's it's an incredibly fun and enjoyable. And you can see how people and you can laugh at the suit and say it's rubber, but you know what, watch that guy and how you notice when he's out of the water he's breathing for air. Yeah, his you know, gills. His gills they go up and down. Right, and and it's uh, oh my god, it's it's terrific. It's really terrific, and I had a blast watching. It. I had an absolute blast watching that picture. So I, and, I my my uh, message to everybody is if you if you feel like maybe older films aren't for you, lean into it. Watch more of them because yeah. I promise I promise you will learn that they actually are for you because they're actually great pieces of art made by human beings who had just as much to say as as any uh, as any person who's working in the film industry today. Well, you know, and like I always tell, like younger people who you know they know they know cinema from Star Wars up. Okay, yeah, Star Wars on. And I said, you know, I it never. Okay, I, I understand Star Wars, but I'm not. Well, don't you understand Star Wars? And I said, well, you know, I grew up as a kid watching James Bond movies. And people say, well, what do you like about the James Bond films? And I said, it's real simple. I like James Bond because I thought as a kid this is what I would be doing as an adult. He drove fast cars. He beat up guys. He blew up stuff. And the best thing of all is that every time he walked into a room, there was a naked woman in the room waiting for him. <laughs> and I thought, boy, I can't wait till I'm an adult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is what happened to me. Of course it doesn't. But, you know, it was like, it was like a, a more mature thing. And it, you know, it's all like when I was a kid, you didn't want to see kid movies. 
That's true. You didn't want to see films. You didn't see films that appealed to kids because that was corny stuff. I wanted to see what the adults were watching. You know? I should have. I should have been watching James Bond instead of Freddy Krueger and Henry Portrait of a yeah. Serial Killer. Well, that was that <laughs> oh, was my. <laughs> I grew up and I watched Robot Jocks, and I, I, mean, I, I, mean, I had an idea of adulthood that never panned out. Exactly. Is there? You know, there 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 are very few films which I cannot. I actually I did watch it again. There are very few films that I can watch if they really disgust me, really disgust me. There are very few films like that. And Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is one of them. Mm-hmm. And 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 I'm a, a really good friend of producer, Steve Jones. I've known Steve for years. I, I met him shortly after the movie came out. And we've been friends ever since. Nice. And I told Steve and and I said, you know, it's one of the few movies that I got really angry when I saw it. Yeah, I, re- I was so disgusted and angry because it was wrecked to me by a friend, and I was so angry when I saw the picture. I went back to him and I said, "How could you tell me to watch that picture? It is the most vilest. It's the vilest thing I've ever seen." You know, and then I start thinking, "Why did that film upset me so much?" Hmm. Which is difficult. I mean, you think about there's it. There's few there's, reasons, there's, but maybe it like. takes place in Chicago. <laughs> Maybe. There are films you don't like. There are films you hate. You don't like. This is an awful picture. But there are very few films that you hate that disgust you. Like, oh, my God. Oh, this is depraved. And that's one of them. I tried to avoid films like that. You know, okay, I saw, I saw Human Centipede, which isn't that <laughs> disgusting. But I didn't see, I didn't see her, Human Centipede 2. No, you don't know. You know, I said, okay, I get the point. Okay, I saw Hostel. I didn't have to see Hostel 2. I get the point. Oh, you might be missing out. Hostel 2 is actually uh, pretty fun. Hostel 2 is kind of like in the company of men meets Hostel. Oh, get out of here. It, no, I swear to God. That's, it, it's absolutely Get out of here. Swear to God. Swear to God. Hostel 2 better than Hostel 1. I'll say it now. Okay. Jesus. I would, I would not put in the company of men. In it's the interesting. Movie. It's an interesting movie. Now you're making me want to see it. And also, Eli Roth is one of the few modern horror film directors who knows how to frame a shot and doesn't just shoot a lot of shaky cam coverage and then figure it'll all edit well, together okay, later. Yeah, I'll true, agree with but that. You see, I always see, but I always said that Eli Roth was a triple threat. He couldn't write, he couldn't direct, and after seeing him in, in, in Glorious Bastards, he couldn't act. I always thought he was a triple threat. It's a very, yeah, it's a very good singing in the rain reference. It's a very good singing in the rain reference, but I don't agree. Right. Okay. But but I hear I hear I you know Eric who hated Eric Jones who hated him he liked Green Inferno which yet has not been released. I'm, yeah, uh, and he's also got another it, movie um, at Sundance with knock, Keanu knock, Reeves. Knock knock. Uh, yeah, that played at uh, Sundance. Knock yeah. knock. It's, it's a remake things. of a movie called Death Game, with uh, which I've seen with Seymour Castle. I've seen that picture. Years and years ago, and it's a remake of that movie. Uh, it huh. got okay reviews. It got okay reviews. Uh, Eric didn't particularly. He thought it was okay. It, nobody's crazy about it, but it's, it's a completely different movie. It's not violent or gory. It's just kind of twisted. Sure, but it's, That's a, it's cool. a different type of Eli Roth picture. I'm down. Um, so speaking of Eli Roth, we should give our top three Stanley Donnan films. That was a, you know what I liked about that segue is that you didn't give a fuck. You didn't care at all to try to make it like. 
No. Okay, my my three, my top three. I will say uh, two for the row. Number one. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, number two, I would say arabesque. And uh, number three, three, that's tough. Number it three is tough. Is. I mean, it, it, boy, I I don't know where to go with that one. There's so many films I could, I could pick. Um, but I guess I'll have to go with Singing in the Rain for number three. And number one for me is Singing in the Rain. Number two. Two for the road and number three charade. Uh, uh-huh. My num- my number one is singing in the rain. My number two is charade, and my number three is seven brides for seven brothers. With with the yeah. uh, with the asterisk that um, because I just lost my job and I've been sort of in a, a panic <laughs> downward spiral of of applying for jobs and getting depressed and doing things other than watching uh, Stanley Donut movies. Uh, I only watched four of his films. So uh, I I really need to see more before I can have an informed opinion. But those are my top three. Same same here, for sure. Yeah, Just, but you know what? Well, this is the only show where we can go from Stanley Dolan to Eli Roth. I, yeah, I, sure. I, I, <laughs> That's us. Because we love it all. It's like, it's like two two complete opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> well, we already determined that Sam Raimi is the Eli, is the Stanley Donan of horror. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm, well, you know, I'm fine with that. Yeah, you could, you could, you could. Yeah, you could say that. That's right. You can actually say that. Right. I did. I did. Yeah, you did. So, so there you go. <laughs> Thank you there so is much. There's a logic behind that, folks. Believe it or not. Yeah. yeah. Uh, watch Arabesque and then watch Evil Dead and then uh, get back to us. So, Sergio, uh, where can we? Um, before you hang up, can you remind us where we can read your work again? Oh, yeah. First of all, you can go on uh, IndieWire.com, Shadow and Act. I'm one of the co-founders and uh, uh, contributing editors. Shadow and Act, we cover all things about black cinema, black media. I mean, we, uh, uh, oh, boy, do we get comments. My God. And you know what? I think we are, and I'm not exaggerating, I think we are on the top of the website for white supremacist groups. And um, <laughs> uh, stormfront, uh, yeah. comments we get. That's right. a good place and, to be. And, and, that means you're doing something right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> we're doing something perfect. Uh, and then you can hear me on WHBK um, on uh, eighty-eight point five FM, or go on go on the website whpk.org. At least once a month, I, I do a regular show, but once a month I have Eric Childress on, and we do three hours of talking about movies and new DVDs, and he's going to be on my show next Wednesday, the 4th. He's going to talk all about Sundance. Oh, boy. Uh, he's at Sundance. He's seen, I think his goal was to see 33 movies, <laughs> and uh, which is average for him. True. And, uh, and we're going to talk about them and what he liked and what he hated. And and also uh, the Black Harvest Film Festival. I'm literally in the process right now of looking at movies, contacting filmmakers. I do know one of the films at Sundance will be playing at Black Harvest this year. Nice. I know that for a fact. Uh, con- the filmmaker contacted me before his film show- was shown at Sundance. We showed a previous movie. He's dying to come back here to show his new film called Cronies. Produced by Spike Lee, and we'll be showing that at the festival this year. So that's one down, another forty to go. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure, great. Well, we'll definitely plug that festival once we get once it gets closer too. Yeah, it's always first weekend of August, first Friday of August, it continues for an entire month. 
the entire month of August. Nice. Well, thanks so much, uh, Serge. It was a blast talking with you once again. This was fun. I love doing it. Like I said, I love talking about movies and I love talking about directors. And then I just, the time just flies by. And, you know, even even how long we talk, we still maybe touch the surface. I mean, just yeah, check out Charlie Down in movies. He's a great, great filmmaker. One of the great American filmmakers. One of the great American filmmakers. Check out his stuff. Agreed. Thanks a lot, Sergio. Thank you so much. Thank we'll you talk guys. to you again I soon. I really, really love this. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Patrick? Yeah? That was great. Oh, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, I had a blast. And yeah. I'm very curious. We're, we're, we're doing a director I don't know a thing about. Uh, I'm sure you know a little bit, but I don't really know anything. I know two things. Okay. I, I once had a psychiatrist, uh, a, a very sketchy <laughs> psychiatrist. The first time I ever met her, she was wearing a Playboy Bunny shirt, which was odd. Um, mm-hmm. And she didn't – English was a second – a distant second language, I should say. <laughs> and uh, it was, was not a great psychiatrist. But when I – she asked me what things I was into or whatever and I said film – and she asked me what filmmakers I liked, and I told her. She goes, "Oh no, 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 no! You need to watch Michael Fassbender." So Michael Fassbender. I, so uh, not Michael Fassbender. You know what I mean? Um, Werner. Werner Fassbender. Okay. Uh, more is it Fassbinder? Fassbinder. Fassbinder. Binder. I bet it's Binder. I bet it's Binder too. Okay. At any rate. That's what I know about Michael Fassbinder is a favorite of sketchy psychiatrists um, and apparently a queer filmmaker. So shocking, mm. shocking for Directors Club. Yeah, um, I, 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 I'm dying to see World on the Wire because the back the description on the uh, Criterion describes it as Philip K. Dick meets Kurt Vonnegut meets all the things that Jim loves. So, that's a weirdly specific description. They, they say meets all the things that Jim loves. I know, right? It's four hours. I'm going to do it. You're going to do it. I'm all right, totally going to do it. I probably won't <laughs> if it's four hours. Yeah, I'll figure it out. I'll just sleep well, less that night. We'll we'll see. Also, I need to uh, get my computer repaired, so I probably will have less time to watch movies. So we'll see how it all goes. Oh yeah, we're gonna have a great time. I know it. This is always so much fun to do. I love it. Or maybe next time we'll be in the same room. How's that? That'd be even better. I felt I felt a little disconnect, and I was yeah, like, yeah. "Oh, well, I miss Patrick's Chicago, face. I miss I, I miss seeing your you know flames on, on the side of your you know face. breathing heavy face. Yeah, I miss seeing flames. flames. I was doing a clue on the side reference. Of my face. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I know. Okay, uh, blame the Chicago Transit Authority. That's all I have to say. Mm, blame it. No, that won't work. I was going to do blame, blame it. Blame it on the CTA. If you really want to just stretch it out <laughs> and not give a fuck. Hey, Jim, where can they find us? They can they find us at the uh, directorsclubpodcast.com. Where can they email us? By the way, we've been getting a lot of emails and we love it. Guys, keep emailing <laughs> us. I try to respond to every single email we get. Yeah. I do. I do respond uh, to every email. <laughs> I just burst out laughing thinking about one of our most recent emails. It's not that funny. I think it's cute. 
and I'm laughing at it. That's how right. cute it is. Anyway, right, let's move on. Um, Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. Please. Yeah. And you can also check us out. We're all over the place. We're at Twitter. Um, I'm at Instant Gym at Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Patrick Capole on Twitter and Letterboxd. And of course, uh, if you go to Patrick's, that's P A T R I C K S, new album, Patrick's new album.wordpress.com, you can find my uh, album blog if that's anything you're interested I'm in. I'm only going to release this album if you start this album by saying, This is the song on my new album. You like Tiny Tim? Mm. Well, like <laughs> the Beastie Boys. That's Check your head. I think t- I think the Beastie Boys are referencing Tiny Tim. Oh, because Tiny Tim has at the beginning of uh, <laughs> of course <laughs> uh, ha- w- having a wonderful time. He goes, "Thank you for being here, and I'm so happy that you've come to join me on my new album." Mm, maybe that is it. Yeah. Anyway, that's all, everybody. We'll see you in about a couple weeks for Fast Binder. 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 Yeah, we'll see you then. And as always, we'll see you in a couple of weeks for Kermit saying Beender. Fast <laughs> Beender. Hey everybody, I want to have a special guest, Vernon uh, Fastbinder. <laughs> I would love it if we just did it. That should be what we do for April 1st just turn to the Muppets. Uh, you can do that. I will uh, fuck off to Legoland. I'm not doing that. Uh, I knew it. Mm-hmm. Not adventurous at all. I don't like the Muppets as much as you do, Jim. That's true. You do. You do like Rick, Rick and Morty, and I'm very happy that you told me to watch that because it's fucking great. I didn't just tell. I told you to watch it on this show, but I showed you it. That's true. Yeah, love it. Yeah. It's great. You know what? You know what else I love? What? I love you, Patrick. <laughs> Is that how we're introducing it? I love you, Jim. favorite Blaxploitation film is History the Hard Way, because it was Jim Brown, Jim Kelly, and Fred Williamson, and the premise is this white supremacist group that has this plan to poison the water supply that would kill all black people. Yeah, I, I and, knew that one. And, right, and they, it's on DVD, and they find out, and it's like James Bonian film. And I said to myself, if you were going to cast that film today, who would you get? Hmm, Kevin Hart... Terrence Howard. Yeah. You know, we'll all be dead. (laughs) Forget it.